Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're so glad that you're here. As always, I am your host, Lauren Ash, and as always, I am joined by my co-hostess with the most S, Christy Oxborough. How you feeling? I just had a moment uh, when we were starting. We always start uh, We start with a clap yep. for the sake of our editor, and yep. I noticed, <laughs> and I'm sure I do it every time, but I noticed as you always count us in. You're always like, we're going to do the clap. And I always find I can't look you in the eye when, when we're clapping. And I don't know what it is, but there's something about it where I'm like an abused animal where I just can't make eye contact with a human. I'm just like, no, I have to look everywhere else. And I don't know what it is. But it was specifically like as soon as you were like, we're counting it down. I was like, yeah. And then my eyes were like, oh, look away. Like, well, you know what's so know funny why. about that? I checked in with that moment today, too, which I normally don't. And what I notice about myself is I put my hands up to clap and then I wait. And I wait until your hands are up because God forbid you're not ready. So I'm like, when she puts her hands up, then I'll start the countdown. I've never noticed that I've done that, but I do know I notice now. So, I mean, what a what a romp already. We are who we are. We we are who we are unapologetically so. That is the truth, and that is what brings the milkshake to the yard. What? Ow! That's I did, misquoted. That's the milkshake that brings the boys to the yard, is what I should have said. But that's, um, listen, this is a hangover from last week's episode, and, and we, we got to get into it. Because if you listen to last week's episode, which of course yeah. was Ed and Lorraine Warren, then you'll know that there was a lot happening. Um, 
probably one of the most chaotic episodes we've ever done. It's up there for me as a favorite. But the big the big thing that we have to check in on that we we teased in that episode was yeah. we discovered in real time that I had had a Blanche formation, which is extremely out of character for me. Yeah. And then Christy kind of noticed that she was feeling a little calmer. And the, the quote at one point was, have my loins cooled? Uh, to which I, of course, reassured her that's impossible. Uh, I love that that was important to me um, to reassure you that you're still a Blanche through and through. Well, uh, that's your character to re- want to reassure me about anything. True. Very true. But basically what happened was, you know, we threw out some scenarios to each other and we realized, oh, my gosh, we freaky Friday. There was it was, of course, a paranormal episode. And we had our first tech glitch in since the last time we did a paranormal episode, which I don't want to think about that too hard because, again, (laughs) it's not good for me. Um, Long story short, we have to check in about where we're at because we we didn't know. It was like, is this new Blanchisms? Are the new Blanchisms here to stay with me? Has Have Christie's loins cooled? I mean, these are the questions. And we have not pre-planned this. So I am asking now in real time, like, how do you think we should check in? Do you think we should do a test like we did last time? Do we just want to talk about it? Where are you at with this whole uh, phenomenon? Oh, I... It hasn't sat well with me. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. I'm the, sure. I, I mean, the idea of cooling off, oof, I, it alone uh, makes me nervous. But I just assumed we'd have to do some sort of a test just yeah. to be just to be sure of what our gut reaction is. I think that's great. Because if you ask me right now, I don't know what my answer is. It was the whole thing in the moment in the last episode was that in the moment this stuff was coming out of my mouth that normally never would. Yeah. So I do think that that is the only way to properly test. Oh, it has to be. There's like, I don't even know how I'm going to test you, but I've got to come up with something on the fly that just, yeah, that I think will peak your inner Blanche. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Uh, Okay. Well, listen, do you want me to start then? I'll, I'll, I'll quiz you, sure. I'll test you first. Okay, sure. I haven't planned anything either. Um, okay. God, I'm, the first I'm nervous. <laughs> I'm nervous too. I'm nervous too. We don't know which way this is going to go. No. Okay. Okay. Uh, did you hear? Mm-hmm. Keanu Reeves made a large donation to an animal charity. Oh, of course he did. Ooh, I don't I like the, that. On the Blanche meter, the needle is not moving. The needle is not moving. I don't like that. I don't like I'm, that. Yeah. And listen, that's also not true. I, I mean, maybe he did, maybe he didn't, but I just made that up for the sake of the, of the course, experiment. So. Of course. And just know yeah. that what I'm going to say is also made up. Okay. For the sake of, you know, I don't want the people being like, oh my God, to the internet. Exactly. This is just for the sake of a test. I'm ready. I'm, I'm clearing my mind. I'm clearing my... Okay, I'm ready. Did you hear that Chris Evans had another accidental photo post? <laughs> I can't even say what I want to say. Um, yeah, I, Blanche is still here. The Blanche formation has happened. Oh, shit. Yeah. Again, part of me is like, oh, well, I guess I'll check in with you in 40 years because I... <laughs> I get it for 40 years and which then I'm like wait I turned 40 a few months ago 
did I have my first Blanche when I was like three months old? That's so weird. Not the point. Well, the point. you know what, though? That's Listen, I think the answer is, of course you didn't. So that gives me hope that this isn't a 40-year sentence for either of us. Because I don't know if I can live like this. I know that this is how you live. But for me, it's distracting in my life. Yeah. It's all-consuming. Yeah. You know, it's, it's uh, yeah, listen. Mm. God, yeah, Chris Evans. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I feel as long as... There's a, as long as there's one Blanche on the show, we'll be fine. I ideally would love us to get to a place where there's two Blanches. Maybe one can be a lower, you know, a less overwhelming Blanche for you. A little Blanche. You know, yeah. So you're like Blanche, but you're like a little, uh, it's less, it's more calm for you. Maybe still a I'm, Blanche, but. I'm no. the Bow Wow to your Snoop Dogg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would also hang out with Martha Stewart. <laughs> of course. I love of course. all the things that Snoop Dogg has done. That's the number one for me where I'm like, yep, I would do that. Yeah. I want to I wanna watch her craft in real time. I want to see yes. how it goes. I don't think I could craft in her presence because I would just... I would be a nervous Nelly, and any paper I touch would be so soaked with sweat, it would just disintegrate. <laughs> I couldn't handle it. But mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just, I, I'd love to meet her. I'm learning now. I think, I think the world of Martha Stewart. There I said it. Well, you know what's She's nice an icon. is the, we, she is an icon. I think also, um, I think we really underestimate just how, many revelations happen on this show like we connect <laughs> yes. to things that we didn't know uh that we yeah. didn't know were relevant to us um moments before moments before and yeah. i i also am realizing that i know that i'm i'm full blanche uh, I, I, and it's 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 intense because i am feeling compelled that i have to share something and i'm like this is i this is not me Today is a very important day for me because it's the six-year anniversary of when I was on stage presenting an award with Heidi Klum. Hey. And I know what you're thinking. Why is that important? But that's because I recently discovered the Sia video where Heidi Klum and Pedro Pascal have what can only be described as a softcore pornography scene. <laughs> and she licks his face. And I am uh, affected. I'm affected yeah. by it. I'm affected by it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, because I, now I, I realize, look at that. There it is. There's she and I. I pulled the photo up on my phone. I'm like, that means I'm one degree of separation away from Mando. And that's intense for me. I, like, I need you to know every time it happens, I'm just like, in my head, I go, God, is this what it looks like? Watching <laughs> her, like, blanch out in real time. It's like, is this what it looks like? Huh. Um, I mean, I'm desperately, I'm racking my brain trying to think if there is something or someone in this episode that I mentioned that would normally have gotten a reaction out of me. I don't believe there is, but again, <laughs> my brain's everywhere. But I think it's always important to bring up anniversary dates, regardless yeah. as to what the occasion is. You not only met but gave out an award with Heidi Klum. 
Yeah. That is wild. You're a step away from a kiss from a rose. (laughs) (laughs) And a lick of a face. Yeah, you're so right. Yeah. Oh, God. Kiss from a rose, lick of a face. I don't want to say it, but (laughs) merch just keeps happening. You know? It just keeps happening. The slogans, they just keep happening. Um, I would love for that to be a tagline of our show. Kiss from a rose, lick of a face. I'm writing it down. Um, it does feel like it's on brand for us. It and does. this new brand from me. Uh, what a joke. I also have to just say, we are recording this on 2-22-22. Yeah. Which is also a Tuesday, people are pointing out. Um, yeah. A lot of twos. Is this the day, perhaps, that that to become one? <laughs> like, did, did these, did, does your Blanche... Rise back up and mind dissipate, so then we maybe kind of, you know, stay somewhere else. Is is this Blanche Blanchination? That's what I was gonna say. Is the Blanchination? I'm uh, I'm not even saying it, I need the entire thing back. Just we if if it comes if just enough comes out that we even out to what is comfortable for us because yeah. I know our levels are different, different. in comfort, but so sure. that we could just be both in a comfortable place, but still both have enough that we want that'd yeah. be great i think that that's nice it's also a possibility that the that the blanche formation could be tied to like a moon cycle the oh. next new moon is march 2nd that's another two so maybe i don't know maybe that's when it'll shift the point is dear <laughs> listeners you are along for the ride in real time uh and i couldn't be happier about it if i'm being honest like i feel alive in a way that i didn't two and a half weeks ago <laughs> a week and a half ago um <laughs> It also should be noted, like, I'm so hot. Like, <laughs> physically, my body feels hot. I feel it in my chest. Like, I really do think that something happened last week. I feel dead inside. <laughs> oh, my God. We have become each other. I feel <laughs> I'm always dead inside. Yeah, I feel, like, for lack of better words and for uh, people are going to be like, oh, that can't be real. I, I, there is an emptiness like it feels like something's missing. Like I'm not even kidding. I'm like a shell of a woman. <laughs> I'm a shell of a Blanche. Oh my god! I You're truly Michelle Obama. Thank you, Michelle for that. Obama. Thank I you for know. that. I. You know I, what? I like it. What I what I wouldn't give. Play. What I wouldn't give to be oh, her. For... She's uh, speaking of icons. Yeah. Oh my god! Yes. Look yeah. again. I'd be friends with her, but I'd also probably be too nervous to craft in front of her. I don't know why I, don't know I would ever after, but have yes. to. Well, apparently, never say never. Well, she might judge a craft contest that I decide to enter for whatever reason. Whatever craft contest Michelle Obama is judging, <laughs> just sign me up now. I'm ready to go. I feel like it's going to end up being I show up, I'm ready to go, and I'm like, God, there's a lot of kids around, don't you think? And then I find out somehow I've inexplicably entered a children's contest. Mm-hmm. And that my they kind of like didn't look at the of birth year, or I miswrote it in. So they were like, "Oh, that's so great! She's four. And it's like, "Oh no, I forgot the zero. I am, no, I am not four. Oh yeah. And then it'll be like, "Well, it's too late now." And I'm standing on a stage with a sea of kindergartners, and it's like, "Which one of us can make the best thing?" And it's like, obviously, I destroy them, but not the boy. <laughs> 
I always love when it's about destroying someone that's not an equal opponent. That always feels right. I just feel like in the end, I would be like, ah, I've got to do something to wreck it because I would be more concerned about Michelle's respect than I would be about that trophy. But you know what? I think that we need to reframe this. Perhaps you're at that competition because you're also judging the competition. Oh, that'd be nice. Oh, then we'd be colleagues. Oh, see. Oh, I'd like that. Yeah, I'd like that. Nice. Oh, I like that. God. Well, listen. I gotta say very quickly. The episode that we're doing today is, of course, Doctor Feelgood, and I need you to know that every time I read those words, hear those words, and for the majority of the last ten minutes of our lives, what's going through my noodle? Nothing other than to make you feel good. All right, like that's all that I can think. <laughs> And also, shout out Tommy Lee. (laughs) Once again, this is the second time Tommy Lee has come up on this show. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Look, uh, um, I'm going to say it. It never comes up. (laughs) I I got to a place, uh, because we first talked about doing this episode last year. We did. Because I found out about this particular gentleman during my research for Marilyn Monroe Mm. And then I started looking into it further and I was like, oh, this keeps going. So then I got myself ready and then just, it just never came up again. And then finally, just out of nowhere, I was like, yeah, let's just do this episode already. Uh, And it just, there's not really a stopping point. Like it just keeps going. And yeah, I found a client list of over a hundred names and wow. I could have just kept going and I'm like, I have to, so I had to like specifically choose who I was going to talk about and everybody's almost connected to everybody because that's just kind of how it all works. And right, I I know that Aretha Franklin did a song uh, called Dr. Feelgood. Oh. Um, and I know that uh, uh, Motley Crue. Was that right? That's Tommy well, Lee. Tommy Lee. Yeah. That's what I was. Just uh, I know that in there. Uh, that song exists, and yeah. at no point was I like, I've got nowhere <laughs> for this to go uh, in my notes. But I, I will say, this is not as long as my Nicole Brown Simpson notes. Sure, but longer than most of my other notes have been late in the last year because wow, it doesn't stop. And some of them, I had to just like bare bones a section just to move on because uh somehow this man just <laughs> i i'm still baffled about how this man even existed right and i'll say it well i don't know i'm not a doctor so i i make a lot of calls that i feel are me pretending i'm a doctor but i'm not a doctor in any way never went you just to play one on a podcast <laughs> occasionally i try uh i will also absolutely uh fuck up a lot of medical terms and of course uh medication names so you have that to look forward to (laughs) well what i want you to know is you said bare bones and i internally just went (laughs) bones i I, it's not this is it's not functional for me to live this way i can't do it I can't do it. Um, I like seeing how Blanche affects each of us. Like, I like... Yeah. Because yeah. Blanche was... Blanche hit different with me, although I grew up with her. So I know yeah, no other way. it's foreign to me. It's foreign to me to be this way. I, I am not this way. And it's... <gasps> anyway. Well, 
Uh, listen, well, I think we should just get into it. I mean, uh, yeah. be- before we do, I obviously have to ask you what you're drinking over there. Now, we're, we're recording this earlier in the day than we typically we do. We are. So, so uh, I only have a water. That, that's all I have going. Also, yeah. because I am overly caffeinated. Way too much. Sure. Way too much. Sure. I mean, I feel great, but, you know. Again, Blanche, Blanche hits different. And it, it's, it's on one hand, it's nice so that you mm-hmm. get a chance to see what it's like. And on the other hand, I feel awful because you get a chance to see what it's like. <laughs> Take a chance on Blanche. That's, yeah. what, it's, that's oh. what I'm doing. I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, I, due to the earlier uh, nature of the day and... Uh, <laughs> my complete frantic state of mind. I'm just a water and a Coke. Just, yeah. just getting by. <laughs> just Two getting women by. <laughs> getting by. Uh, well, listen, uh, dear listeners, I think we should jump right in right there. From the people who brought you Kiss from a Rose and Lick of a Face, we bring you, of course... <laughs> Our Dr. Feelgood episode. Now, I don't know anything about this person. I think I only read a very brief synopsis. So I am jazzed to learn anything and everything uh, because we all know that Christy always brings the goods. So if you're in the boat with me and you don't know who we're talking about, I'm going to tell you right now. Dr. Max Jacobson fled Germany just prior to World War II and established a medical practice in New York. Over the years, Jacobson would become known for the vitamin shots that he personally concocted. Celebrities, politicians, athletes, and even royalty would flock to Jacobson, who they referred to as Dr. Feelgood. But what many of the patients didn't realize is that Jacobson's shots were often laced with speed. Many of Jacobson's patients became addicted to his medicine, and some even met untimely deaths because of it. So how did Jacobson go from a small-time doctor in Europe to the personal physician of some of Hollywood's elite? And what was Jacobson injecting into John F. Kennedy during his time as president? Christy Oxborough investigates. <laughs> I am already like, this is wild. That's I, wild. I, I, again, I'm going to say a lot. I can't with this man. Like, I can't. Yeah. I, I understand it was a different time. Uh, but I'm still, <laughs> there are a lot of things that I'm like, how, how is that? How is that? Okay. I, well, I, I, from what I've read so far, <laughs> I don't think it was. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. Uh, and we are going to go on probably the biggest journey of everywhere and nowhere all at once. Like it's this, you think you're like, oh, okay, we're going to, we're going to talk about a, a doctor and then move on with our lives. We're going to talk about so many people. It's, it, I can't, I can't. Come with us if you want to feel good. We're going to go on a journey. (laughs) Thank you for that. You're very welcome. Oh God, I will never, even if it means I never get it back, I will never, (laughs) never deny how much I love seeing it in you. Listen. You know? Oh yeah. Well, I, and what I was about to say was. There's something else I'd like to see in me. I am not well. That's not a well statement for me to make. I am a public figure. What are you doing, Ash? What are you doing? I had to walk so that you could run. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 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 We'll we'll see if anything glitches during this episode. Although I could not be happier that you happened to know when the next full moon is. Just off the top of your head. Yep. I like that. That's my life now. That's my life. If you could see inside this house and the amount of candles and crystals and things on the calendar. Yeah. yeah. That's where I'm at. 
I get it. Look, you do you unapologetically, and uh, that's it. Uh, So, uh, my now usual uh, disclaimer, I give our dear listeners a heads up. Today's episode will feature discussions of physical abuse, suicide, substances, and substance abuse. Trigger warning for those who need it. This is a doctor who laced a lot of his uh, shots, so there's going to be a lot of discussion about uh, injections and such, so heads up for that. So, uh, Lewis Jacobson dreamed of becoming a teacher, but instead chose to become a butcher to pay his sister's dowries. By the time he raised enough money, he was 40 years old and felt it was too late to start a new career. So he chose to be to remain a butcher. And while I respect this choice, let me be clear. It is never too late to start over. To quote Judge Judy, quote, if you don't make it in your 40s, make it in your 50s. If you don't make it in your 50s, make it in your 60s. My point is never give up. And that has been your moment of inspiration. So Lewis decides to place an ad looking for a wife and gets a response from a woman named Ernestine, who was born 244 miles or 392 kilometers away in Heckelberg, Germany. Now, Heckelberg was a very small place. Only about 200 families lived there at the time. And since Ernestine was from the only Jewish family there, Lewis chose his bride. The couple had three sons, Heinz, Simon, and Max, who was born July 3rd, 1900, in Fordon, uh, a small village just inside the border of Poland. Horrifying side note, as part of Operation Tannenberg during World War II, Nazis invaded Fordon and murdered every single citizen in October and November 1939. It is estimated that 1,200 to 1,400 innocent people lost their lives the area became known as the Valley of Death. Oh, my God. Yeah. And I, I want to say that's the last time I'm going to talk about Nazis, but it's not. Oh, boy. So we just all brace ourselves. Yep. In 1901, the Jacobson family moved to Berlin. A few years later, Max would look out a window and spot an organ grinder in the courtyard with a monkey. People hmm. in surrounding homes started to throw coins out of their windows, but some of the coins landed on the wrong side of the fence. So Max went to retrieve the, the coins to give to the organ grinder when Max impaled himself on a fence spike. Oh. A doctor was called, but when he arrived, he told the family a surgeon would be needed to properly close the wound. The surgeon arrived in a shiny new 1905 car, and that was the moment that Max knew... When he grew up, he wanted to become a doctor. <laughs> Not because his life was being saved, but because of the shiny car? Or maybe both? I truly believe it was the car and mm-hmm. the prestige okay. of that man, because that checks out for this man. Uh, in 1917, Max graduated from Real Gymnasium, which is a school that went from elementary through high school. At the time, World War I was ongoing, and Max's mother was determined to help Max avoid the draft. Her other sons, Heinz and Simon, were both allegedly killed during the war, one from dysentery, one from shrapnel. So Max's mother made a few calls and got Max the job as a medical assistant at Pankow Hospital. 
At first, he cleaned instruments and disinfected operating rooms, but soon he was standing with the attendings during autopsies and operations. Max was taught how to take vitals, administer injections, and change dressings, which is incredibly impressive to think a kid just out of high school was doing that, especially during the Spanish flu pandemic in 1917. In 1918, when Max turned 18, he officially received his draft notice. But again, his mother wasn't about to watch her third son go off to war. So when Max went to meet with the district draft board director, he brought along a small gift. Mrs. Jacobson learned that the director had an obsession with Liederkranz cheese. And because of the war, it was nearly impossible to find. Well, somehow she found some and sent it along with Max during his interview. It is said that when Max first walked in, the director said they need every man they could get at the Polish front. But after seeing Max's gift, the director said, quote, Well, what's one man more or less at the front? Max was not drafted. Oh, my God. It was that easy. I mean, I do a lot of things for cheese, too, but that's, that's crazy. It was that easy. I'm dying to know where she got it, because that couldn't have been easy. But she uh, she saved him from the war. Max wow. enrolled in pre-med at Friedrich Wilhelm University in Berlin, which is now known as the Humboldt University of Berlin. In 1920, Max transferred to the University of Würzburg, where he developed an interest in biochemistry. After an internship at the Surgical University Clinic, Max graduated from med school in 1929. That same year, he met and married Alice Lohner, and the couple had a son named Thomas in 1931. Early on in his medical career, Max became fascinated with psychiatry, even consulting on cases with Carl Jung, which leads us to a, ew, Carl... Side note. (laughs) (laughs) Carl Jung was the number two bigwig at the most prestigious mental institution in Europe. In 1904, 19-year-old Sabina Spielrein uh, was brought to the institution's emergency room. Sabina was the oldest of five children in a wealthy Jewish family. By the age of six, Sabina was able to speak three different languages fluently, but not everything was pleasant at home, as Sabina would later say she was physically abused throughout her childhood by both of her parents. Mm. When Amelia, Sabina's only sister, suddenly died from typhoid, Sabina suffered from a mental breakdown and was taken to a mental institution in Switzerland. But when that stay proved to be unsuccessful, in August 1904, Sabina was taken to, oh boy, Bergholzi? Lee? Something like that, uh, where Carl Jung worked. Under Jung, Sabina made huge strides and was well enough to apply to medical school in October 1904. While admitted to the hospital, Sabina fell in love with Carl and remained at the facility as a resident from January until June of 1905, just to be close to him. She wasn't getting treatments at that point. She just wanted to be near him. And it doesn't take a psychologist hat to understand how an impressionable an impressionable young woman with a distant paternal re- relationship could develop feelings for an older man who is acting as her mentor. Thing is, at the time, not only was Young ten years her senior, he was also married and had been since 1903, so he was almost still a newlywed. Not to mention, Young was also in a position of power and her doctor, 
and yet the two had a brief sexual relationship. When Young's wife found out, she told Sabina's parents. Now keep in mind, at this point, Sabina's parents were paying Young to treat their daughter. Then they find out Young is sleeping with their daughter. And what did Young do? He wrote to Sabina's parents and offered to stop seeing her if the parents paid him more for his counseling sessions. Whoa. And if we didn't think Carl Young was gross enough, he was known for having numerous mistresses throughout his marriage, including multiple patients, some of which he was uh, intimate with during their treatment, some of which he chose to wait until after their treatment. So for many reasons, I say, fuck you, Carl Young. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Uh, When Sabina finally got away from Young, she attended the University of Zurich from June 1905 to January 1911. And even though she was reunited with Carl Young when he supervised her medical dissertation, Sabina continued to excel. She would become one of the first people to ever conduct a case study on schizophrenia and would be described as a pioneer of psychoanalysis. And I find it just so sad that Sabina's legacy has become more about her relationship with Young than her incredible contribution to psychology. And his is more about his contribution to, you know, psychology. And then you have to, like, dig to find out he was a creep. You know what I mean? Of course. Yes. Sabina went on to marry a man named Pavel and have two daughters named Nina and Eva. In 1936, Sabina's husband died. And in 1938... All three of Sabina's brothers were executed in the Great Purge. And because Nazis are the literal worst, in 1942, Nazis invaded the Russian Empire where Sabina was living and murdered 27,000 people, including 56-year-old Sabina and her two daughters aged 29 and 16. Yeah, it, uh, again, the Nazis don't get better. So, Uh, no, there's that. But, uh, we back to our regular scheduled programming. Thank you. Max, Max Jacobson's work with Young was insp- inspired Max to start experimenting with methamphetamines as emotional stimulants and mood enhancers. Max found that when he gave MS patients a shot that included methamphetamines, they would receive a tremendous boost of energy. The idea of this energy boost attracted a lot of well-known German musicians and theater people to Max's practice, and by 1932, Max's medical practice was flourishing. He created his own version of shots, which included vitamins, animal blood serum, and methamphetamines. And he continued to change the formula over the years. Max was always sure to test the medicine on himself, though, before administering it to others. Interesting. European celebrities, including royalty, flocked to Max for these miracle shots. But with the prospect of another world war looming, Germany was becoming increasingly dangerous for a Jewish family. One day in 1933, a member of an early Nazi paramilitary organization known as the Brown Shirts visited Max's practice looking for assistance. The soldier allegedly had gonorrhea, and since Nazis believed that premarital sex would lead to sexually transmitted diseases, which would further decline the German birth rate, the soldier couldn't go to an Aryan doctor as he would have been seen as impure and would have been punished or possibly expelled. 
So to hide his diagnosis, this unknown soldier went to Max Jacobson for help. To show his gratitude, the soldier told Max that his name was on a list um, that uh, and the brown shirt secret police would be uh, arriving at his house anytime now to take him and his family. Very next day, Max fled Germany with his wife and their son Thomas. They went to Prague. It is said that the day they left, Max's practice was raided and his nurse was arrested. While in Prague, Max was unable to work. Since the family left in such a hurry, Max left all his equipment and medicine behind so he couldn't afford to open a new practice. He did, however, continue to administer shots to his wife as well as their family and friends privately. He also did research for the Czechoslovakia University. After some time in Vienna, the family moved to Paris, where Max re-established his practice. Now, Max's shots were a combination of enzymes, hormones, vitamins A, B, E, D, and C, with just a small amount of amphetamines. However, what Max considered to be a small amount wasn't really small at all. His magic shots contained about 20 milligrams per dose, which is five times the recommended dose. Oh, yeah, boy. it's just a small amount. Uh, Max then realized what was missing from his shots. It was that boost of energy that came from methamphetamines. So he went back to an original version that included meth in what he now called his vitamin shots. Methamphetamines were first synthesized in 1887 by a Romanian chemist who called it phenylisopropylamine. Uh, over the years, it was synthesized from other stimulants, including epinephrine. Oh, sorry, including ephedrine. And in 1938, it was marketed on a large scale in Germany under the name Pervitin. During World War II, German soldiers, especially pilots, were given Pervitin to stay sharp. From April to July 1940, more than 35 million Pervitin tablets were shipped to German troops. Whoa. American soldiers were given Benzedrine tablets, which were the first brand of amphetamines that were marketed in the United States. It is said that American troops took 200 million amphetamine, amphetamine and methadrine tablets during the course of World War II. Wow. By the 1940s, it was commonplace for actors to use Benzedrine for energy, but it seems surprising. But remember, at that time, stimulants were legal. In fact, in 1937, the American Medical Association approved amphetamines in tablet form and recommended that doctors use it to treat their own fatigue. <laughs> oh, boy. And by the 1950s, methamphetamines were used to treat everything from alcoholism to Parkinson's disease. Now, for those who are wondering, because I too had the same question during my research, what is the difference between amphetamines and methamphetamines? Great question. They are both stimulants that speed up information that travels between your brain and the rest of your body, and it can increase your blood pressure and your heart rate. Methamphetamines, however, have a similar chemical structure to amphetamines, but they are far more potent and cause worse effects on the body. It also, for some reason, methamphetamines uh, enter your brain faster than any other stimulant drugs. Amphetamines, such as Adderall or Dexedrine, are still prescribed today for things like ADHD or narcolepsy. Meth is widely and illicitly manufactured 
uh, using a variety of methods. It is a white, odorless, bitter-tasting powder that can be injected, smoked, snorted, swallowed, or inhaled. Looking at the list of common slang terms for meth makes me feel both incredibly old and incredibly innocent. Some of those terms include speed, crank, chalk, pookie, rocket fuel, Tina, etc. Yeah. Is that like Tina Turner because she she had a lot of energy? Is that what that's about? Oh, that feels right. I hope so. I, I don't hope know. so too. I saw one that I can't, I think it was something, I think it was a sort of meth or something, but it was, the, the term was beans. And I was like, no, I always talk to the cats about their toe beans. And I'm always talking about how I want, I love their beans. And I'm like, oh my God, if someone's hearing this, do they think I run like a drug house? Stop Who would it. be hearing this? <laughs> Oh, I'm convinced I'm being recorded at all times. Of course, you're right. Our phones are always listening. Yeah. What am oh, I talking who are about? We, who are we kidding? If they heard half the stuff I say, they'd be like, maybe, maybe we just close that tap for now. Like I think they'd, oh boy, <laughs> <That> they'd tap. <laughs> I don't know the lingo because again, I'm incredibly old and incredibly innocent. <laughs> Uh, Long-term effects of methamphetamine use can include changes in brain structure, psychotic disorders, and an increased risk of strokes and heart attacks. I found a list of 119 celebrity patients that Max had. And when I took off the patients who were still living and the ones who died from natural causes and things of that nature, I ended up with a list of 85 people. Whoa. Of those 85... 31% died from some sort of heart problem, 9% died from a stroke. Also from that list, 33% died from some form of cancer or lymphoma. Did I think that it could be related to this somehow? Of course. Am I a doctor in any way? Of course not. Did I go through that list of 119 people and painstakingly find out the cause of death for each person so I could share that information with you you here today? You bet I did. Of course you did. Did I also do a (laughs) bunch of math to figure out percentages so that I could run with a potential theory that I had about these miracle shots having major long-term effects on some of these patients? Of course, because that is the level that our dear listeners have come to expect from us, and I refuse to disappoint. Of course. The big thing to remember throughout this episode is that methamphetamine is a highly addictive stimulant and that not every patient of Max's knew the contents of the shots. Some did, but not all of them. In July 1936, the Jacobson family emigrated to the United States. Tensions soon grew between Max and Alice, and the couple divorced. Max officially became an American citizen in 1943, and in 1944, he moved his practice to 155 East 72nd Street in Manhattan. Max connected with a former patient, Nina Hagen, who Max had treated years before in Europe after she fell off a horse. Max and Nina were married in 1946 and welcomed a daughter named Jill in September 1947. In 1946, Max established the Constructive Research Foundation to research multiple sclerosis, although it seemed more likely he used the foundation as a facade to purchase incredible incredible amounts of raw materials to make his famous vitamin shots. So he was was he really helping people and researching MS? Well, according to the MS Society, Max was, quote, a quack and a charlatan. Oh, boy. Yep. Max grew his practice, and just like in 
his European practice, high-profile patients started flocking to his Manhattan address because they all wanted what was considered to be Max's miracle shots. Max's main interest was helping his patients feel better because according to Max, quote, it's better to feel good than to feel sick. Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So just as he had in Europe, Max started to give out his vitamin shots to celebrity clients. Singer Eddie Fisher described the shots as, quote, being lit from within. Wow. Which is probably how I'd describe Blanche, but that's neither here nor there. I can attest to that, yes. (laughs) Uh, A female patient compared the feeling to that of an orgasm. Wow. Writer Truman Capote said it was like, quote, instant euphoria. You feel like Superman. You're flying. Ideas come at the speed of light. You could go 72 hours without as much of a, so much as a coffee break. You don't need sleep. You don't need nourishment. Then you crash. It's like falling down a well, like parachuting without a parachute. You go running back to East 72nd Street. You're looking for that German mosquito, the insect with the magic pinprick. He stings you. And at once you're soaring again. I mean, again, he's a writer. I was just (laughs) going to say. He also, uh, uh, oh God, I love that it's escaping me right now. The, the most, one of the most famous books he did, I read it years ago based on a true crime case. Um, uh, I, the point is he wrote that in such a small span of time and it's like, oh, that's how. Right. That's. That's how he did that. Uh, Mm -hmm. Don't recommend it. That's how he did it. Uh, According to playwright Tennessee Williams, Max created, quote, a magical atmosphere of understanding and compassion. I don't think he ever took my blood pressure or my pulse or had me fill out a form about my medical history. He just looked at me and then started concocting a shot. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if that's something we should be celebrating, but sure. It's it's really not. In Cold Blood. I believe that was the Truman Capote book. I have it sitting downstairs and I'm mentally looking through that shelf, but it's not going well, but I'm fairly certain. So mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't just Hollywood elite that went to Max. His patients were playwrights, fashion designers, authors, opera singers, directors, athletes, politicians, nobility, and even mobsters. I don't have the time to say everybody, but... Just to give you an idea of Max Jacobson's client list, Ingrid Bergman, Winston Churchill, Leonard Bernstein, Truman Capote, Rosemary Clooney, Marlena Dietrich, Hedy Lamar, Tony Curtis, Emilio Pucci, the Everly Brothers, Howard Cosell, Paul Lind, Andy Warhol, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lewis. Hey, lady! Hey, lady! <laughs> I felt like I should uh, do a callback, but thank you. Just for clarification's sake. But again, that is a small sampling of Max's client list. And I want to point out I purposely didn't name some of the more famous people because I'm going to get into them. Of course. In this episode, uh, we're going to start off with an actor named Rob, Robert Cummings. People called him Bob. For some reason, I've chosen to do that. Uh, 
Bob was known for his roles in The Devil and Miss Jones and Dial M for Murder. He received five Primetime Emmy Award nominations, and in 1955, he won Best Actor in a Single Performance for his role in Studio One. For his contributions to the motion picture and television industry, Bob would later receive two stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1960. It is believed that Max met Bob in 1954 through his friendship with one of Max's other famous patients, Rosemary Clooney. Shout out to her nephew, George Clooney. I literally have nothing else to say about him, and that's... That's yeah. so sad and I have to me. so much that I could that I'm going to keep to myself. Well, she'll get it back. She'll get it back. Ugh. Uh, Bob's injections increased to the point where Bob became addicted to the high. Unfortunately, the other side was a near-clinical depression that left Bob spiraling. At this point in time, Max's vitamin shots contained a mixture of vitamins, methamphetamine, sheep sperm, and monkey gonads. <laughs> whoa, whoa. Whoa. Hold on. I'm not trying to derail you for too long here, but those were two specifics I just did not see coming. I know that you'd mentioned like animal matter or something Mm -hmm. before, but those specifics are just not. I've learned. I I have learned. He just was like, whatever he can find, he's going to try. And those specifically, I mean, I absolutely, if you're going to, Put a shot in me, and you're like, oh, yeah, by the way, it does have sheep sperm. I'd be like, and a no thank you. <laughs> I just think, I mean, look, and maybe I'm no doctor. I'm also yeah. no chemist, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that vitamins, sure, they can they can do, they can make you feel better. That That mm-hmm. is scientifically proven. Yeah. Methamphetamine certainly can make you feel better for a short amount of time. That's sure. scientifically proven. I don't think he needed the other stuff. <laughs> I'm not I think sure what, it, what was happening it. there, but well, yeah, well, okay. well, yeah, well, go, I mean, go. if nothing else, it's the first time I've ever been allowed to say sheep sperm on this show. Not that I've ever not been allowed. It was, I've, I'm also writing down monkey gonads. <laughs> so thank you very much. I smell new merch coming. <laughs> <laughs> Just for us, of we course. We haven't sold any of that one. It's so odd. The monkey gonads shirts, they're not selling. Isn't that weird? <laughs> not hitting. Weird. In the late 1950s, friends started to notice a change in Bob. He went from a happy-go-lucky guy and a strong believer in health foods to a belligerent megalomaniac with delusions of grandeur. And as time went on, Bob got progressively worse. Bob's close friend, Art Linkletter, arranged to have Bob committed at a psychiatric hospital where he stayed for a few months. But things weren't much better after he was released, as his addiction continued to cause him to spiral. Bob ended up moving to the West Coast, and since Max was in New York and couldn't administer the shots himself, Max had his son Thomas, who was now a doctor, deliver the shots. Then they taught Bob how to self-administer the shots, which led to Bob taking more than the recommended dose. Bob's depression got worse as he started having money and legal troubles. He got to the point where he was completely out of control on the set of the sci-fi sitcom My Living Doll. He started yelling at directors and writers. He became difficult with his co-stars and often ruined takes. 
Bob was eventually fired from the show and became a pariah in Hollywood. In 1967, he took a role in the film Five Golden Dragons. While on set in Hong Kong, China, he met Gina Fong. The couple became inseparable, and in one of the ballsiest moves I've ever heard of, Bob called his wife and asked if he could bring Gina home to live with them and work as his secretary. His wife somehow said yes, and soon Gina was pregnant with Bob's child and his wife kicked them both out. With no roles coming his way, Bob started doing dinner theater. Him and his wife had a very bitter public divorce in January 1970, which was made even more bitter when the IRS seized the house and evicted Bob's ex-wife and their children. The IRS also seized much of Bob's fortune for unpaid back taxes. In 1971, 61-year-old Bob married his 26-year-old secretary, Gina. And through it all, Bob's reliance on vitamin shots from Max continued to escalate until 1975 when Max stopped administering shots and Bob had to fly to the Bahamas to find a new supplier. In the late 1980s, Bob was diagnosed with Parkinson's and soon after, Gina divorced him in 1987. Bob's, oh, yeah, Bob's friend Milton Burl worried about Bob's mental state and decided to get Bob a caregiver. He placed an ad and chose a Piggly Wiggly cashier who agreed to marry Bob and care for him. Milton admits he chose Martha Berzinski because, quote, again, this is Milton's words, not mine. Bob loved big tits, so I picked the cashier who sent her photo in. Oh. Martha dreamed of living in Hollywood, so she was more than happy to move to the West Coast. However, when she got there, she was surprised to see that her new husband was actually a frail old man. So I guess she didn't pay much attention to the fact that she responded to an ad looking for a caregiver for a frail old man. (laughs) But I have zero respect for this woman, For what I have read, she allegedly was physically abusive towards Bob, outright tormented him to the point where he filed for divorce. Bob Cummings died on December 2nd, 1990 at the age of 80. His death certificate listed his cause of death as renal failure, which is believed to have been triggered by his more than 30 years of meth abuse. Bob's family believed the downfall was triggered by Max's magic elixir. And I, I warn you, folks, we're just going to keep, like, mentioning famous people, and it's just going to feel like there's no cohesion to this, and that's just how I roll today. Yeah. Uh, another famous Jacobson client was director Cecil B. DeMille, who was known for The Greatest Show on Earth, Cleopatra, and Sunset Boulevard. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association presented the Cecil B. DeMille Award for Outstanding Contributions to the World of Entertainment. The award was first handed out in 1952 and was named after its recipient, Cecil B. DeMille. Other honorees include Walt Disney, Judy Garland, Alfred Hitchcock, Lucille Ball, Oprah Winfrey, and as of early February 2022, the most recent recipient was Jane Fonda in 2021. Hmm. In the mid-1950s, while filming The Ten Commandments, DeMille was over budget and stressed and ended up suffering a heart attack. So DeMille flew Max to Egypt to be with him on set. Max also helped the cast and crew, including Yul Brenner, when they all came down with dysentery. DeMille even claimed that Max gave one of his famous vitamin shots to 
Charlton Heston, right before his big scene as Moses. And when DeMille's brother died in March 1955, DeMille requested that Max accompany, accompany him on the press tour for the movie. Cecil B. DeMille died on January 21st, 1959 from a heart ailment. At the time of his death, he still owed Max $38,000 for past treatments, which is equivalent to $367,000 U.S. dollars in 2022. Wow! Uh, next, we have American singer and actor Eddie Fisher, whose personal life is wild. <laughs> Uh, to get into it, we have to start with Mike Todd. He married Elizabeth Taylor in February 1957. Mike was 47. Elizabeth was 24. And somehow it was the third marriage for both. <laughs> they had a daughter in August 1957. And then in March 1958, just 13 months after their wedding, Mike died in a plane crash. Now we put a pin in that for a moment. Eddie Fisher was married to Debbie Reynolds. The couple had a son, Todd, and of course their daughter, Carrie Fisher. Debbie and Elizabeth Taylor were BFFs. Shortly after Mike died, Eddie left Debbie for Elizabeth. Which is all wild to me. Eddie married Elizabeth in 1959. Once his divorce was finalized, they remained married until 1964. A few years later, Eddie married Connie Stevens, who played Miss Mason in Grease 2. Did she do a lot of other movies? Of course. Did I specifically only mention Grease 2 because I am legitimately a huge fan of it? Absolutely. So Eddie Fisher was performing somewhere and he complained about having an inflamed vocal cords. His accompanist told him he knew of a doctor that could cure Eddie immediately. So Eddie was put in touch with Max, who gave him one shot in the arm, another in his hip, Max said, or Eddie, rather, said that his voice came back immediately, and that was the beginning of his 37-year speed habit. Eddie Fisher died September 2010 from complications from hip surgery. He was 82 years old. Uh, Elizabeth Taylor was also a patient of Max's for a while. Elizabeth was born with scoliosis and broke her back in 1944 while filming the movie National Velvet. Unfortunately, the break went undetected for years, so she suffered from chronic back pain. By the time she had surgery to replace some of her spinal discs, she was addicted to alcohol and painkillers. She became the first celebrity to openly admit herself to the Betty Ford Center. Over the years, Elizabeth suffered several bouts of pneumonia, skin cancer, a benign brain tumor, and two hip replacement surgeries. Elizabeth died in March 2011 from congestive heart failure at the age of 79. Do I think that taking shots laced with methamphetamines for years could have contributed to a heart problem? Absolutely. Uh, at Elizabeth's request, the funeral started 15 minutes late because, quote, she even wanted to be late to her own funeral, which I find so charming. I love that. Uh, quick aside, side note, the deep dive that I did on Eddie Fisher was enough to make me think if we ever branch out from true crime, God, I'd love to do a podcast where we just deep dive celebrities. Could I spend three hours talking about Elizabeth Taylor? I could. Would I lie to myself and say it would be less work, but we'd put in just as much time researching? Yes. Would it make us feel alive? Also yes. So maybe that's an idea for one of those other podcasts. We're up to like eight different podcasts that we would potentially do if we had the time. We don't have the time, but no. what a dream. 
What a dream. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Another client linked to Max, Max Jacobson was baseball legend Mickey Mantle. In 1951, Mickey Mantle was invited to the Yankees' spring training. Casey Stengel, who was the Yankees' manager at the time, was so impressed with Mickey that Casey promoted him to right fielder with a starting salary of 7500 which is equivalent to 81000 American in 2022. The Yankees believed that Mickey was going to be their next big star, so he was given number six, which is makes sense because apparently Babe Ruth was number three, Lou Gehrig was number four, Joe DiMaggio was number five. So I guess that's how you know if they think you're something, is if you get to be <laughs> in the sequence. Mickey was sent down to the Kansas City Blues, the Yankees farm team, but was called up to the major leagues soon after, this time wearing number seven. Mickey hoped that 1953 would be his big year, but his momentum was stopped following a torn ACL. There was no treatment for that at the time. Mickey was known for his natural talent, but he was also known for his charisma, swagger, and the fact that he was a womanizer. Both Mickey's father and his grandfather died young from Hodgkin's disease, so Mickey believed he would follow suit, so he lived a reckless lifestyle, believing he would just die young anyway. He drank excessively and in 1994 checked himself into the Betty Ford Center. His alcoholism later led to psoriasis. In September 1961, Mickey was in the home run race against his teammate Roger Maris. Babe Ruth set a record of 60 home runs in September 1927, and Mickey and Roger were looking to surpass it. Mickey hit his 54th home run, but started to feel under the weather. Mel Allen, a sportscaster who did play-by-play announcing for the Yankees from 1940 to 1964, suggested that Mickey go see Max Jacobson. Mickey claims at the first appointment, Max injected the shot too high and hit Mickey's hip bone. Not only did this cause incredible pain, but it also caused a major infection that led to Mickey being briefly hospitalized. He claims that Max told him to walk it off. Max's friend Mike Samick said, quote, Max prepared a special mixture for mantle that included steroids, placenta, bone, calcium, and just a small amount of methamphetamine. Mickey ended up missing multiple games and lost the home run race as Roger Maris hit his 61st home run in the last game of the regular season. Maris's record would stand for more than 30 years until it was broken by St. Louis Cardinals first baseman Mark McGuire in 1998. McGuire finished the season with 70 home runs. Chicago Cubs right fielder Sammy Sosa finished with 66. Despite how the first appointment went, Mickey continued to see Max for the next several years, even self-administering some of his shots, which started to take their toll. In 1965, Mickey said, quote, I'm I'm 35, but I feel 40. In 19... (laughs) I love that it's... That's not that big a leap. It's not that big a leap, but I like... I assume 40 to him was a really old age, and that's... I guess so. In 1969, Mickey retired from baseball after leading the Yankees to seven World Series titles. After his retirement, Mickey's drinking got worse, as did his anxiety, so he continued his shots with Max. Due to his heavy drinking, Mickey developed hepatitis and liver cancer. Do I think that meth-laced shots made the condition worse? I do. Again, I'm not a doctor. But Mickey received a liver transplant in 1995, which leads me to a 
Transplant scandal side note. A trans scandal. Thank you. Oh, I like a tramps, that. Trans transplantal. Good night. <laughs> uh, apparently, Mickey Mantle received a transplant just 48 hours after doctors requested one for him. The United Organ Sharing Network, also known as UNOS, claims that Mickey got to the front of the line so quickly because of how gravely ill he was. And while I understand the concept of the sickest person gets moved to the top of the list, I wish I could see that list so I could see who he replaced as the most urgent case. Because I'm just dying to know, did he, did this, like, 63-year-old man who had a lot of other problems past, like, a 10-year-old? You know, like, I just have a lot of questions about that. Uh, doctors said that Mickey's chance of surviving the first year with a new liver was 85%. Unfortunately, they didn't know that the transplant was too late, as the cancer had already spread. Less than two months after the surgery on August 13, 1995, Mickey Mantle passed away. His official cause of death was liver cancer. He was 63 years old. Now, my question is, yeah. and this is going to sound terrible, but oh, I'm I can't being wait. earnest. I am being earnest. If he passed so quickly after having that transplant, yeah. could they take that liver and give it to someone else? I don't know. I assume yeah. they couldn't based on the fact of how much cancer was in his body. Right. I'm just curious if it was like, if that, can you transplant an organ twice? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's a great question. I, my gut tells me no. My gut tells me that, that no, it's you, you're one and done. But I was just curious because, again, he did get moved up the list. So it would have been interesting to know if then they were like, we will take that back. Thank you. Um, well, if it, it to, whether it's to the 10 year old that you surpassed, <laughs> whether it's real or whether it's possible or not, I think you just gave Grey's Anatomy uh, at least some sort of episode, right? And I am available. Um, <laughs> Listen, on that note, let's take a quick break. Uh, go grab another drink, hit the can, and we're going to be right back with this fascinating episode, Dr. Feelgood on True Crime and Cocktails. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, talking, talking, and we're talking about Dr. Feelgood. Christy's going to give you more info. Now I'm disappointed that every episode doesn't have a fun <laughs> musical bit to it. Well, never say never. This, uh, this just keeps giving, and I couldn't be happier about it. Never say uh, never. So we just spoke about an athlete. I want to go back to talking about actors for a moment mm -hmm. before we get to the big client that was on his list. Ooh. 
Not that these aren't big clients, because I'm about to say the name to you, Judy Garland. Oh. Born Frances Ethel Gum on June 10th, 1922, Judy made her stage debut at just two years old, performing alongside her sisters, Mary Jane and Virginia, as the Gum Sisters. Their mother, F. Ethel, was a horrific stage mother, forcing her girls on stage whether they liked it or not. She was always the first to give a negative review about their performances, and Ethel was also the first person to give Judy pills at just 10 years old. Ooh. Ethel gave Judy pills to help keep her energy up, and then gave her different pills to help her go down so she would be able to sleep at night. When Judy signed on with MCM in 1935, studio executives forced their actors to take a variety of pills to maintain their rigorous shooting schedules. Screenwriter Paul Donnelly once said, quote, They had us working days and nights on end. They'd give us pills to keep us on our feet long after we were exhausted. Then they'd take us to the studio hospital and knock us out with sleeping pills. Then after four hours, they'd wake us and give us pet pills again so we could work 72 hours in a row. Half the time we were hanging from the ceiling, but it was a way of life for us. When Judy filmed her most iconic role as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz, she got chastised over her weight. And to be clear, Judy Garland was a tiny woman, and she was only about four foot nine. But the studio felt she was too heavy in the role, so they placed her on a restrictive diet of chicken soup and black coffee, along with cigarettes and pills to suppress her appetite. Judy's ex-husband, Sidney Luft, later said, quote, she confessed it was virtually impossible for her to sustain a work mode in front of the cameras without taking some kind of medication. Apparently, the studio got so harsh about it, they would watch her while she ate and even take food away from her when they felt she'd had too much. Jesus. Not so shockingly, the body image issues that were created here remained with Judy for the rest of her life. Yeah, I wonder why. Good Uh Lord. And of course they would, because at the time, she was 17 years old. I can't... I can't. She was still essentially a child. One director was even dick enough to call her the Ugly Duckling. Which also stuck with her, because of course it did, and that's bullshit. Yeah. And if this wasn't all bad enough for Judy, she also suffered from incredible anxiety and stage fright, and it is believed that she suffered from postpartum depression following the birth of her daughter Liza in March 1946, where Judy spent a month in the hospital. During this time, Judy suffered a nervous breakdown and was treated at multiple clinics over the span of several months. As her career seemed to fade, Judy increased her use of medications and soon was seeing Max Jacobson for his famous miracle shots. In 1950, MGM terminated uh, Judy's contract, which caused her to further spiral. She tried to take her own life twice, and her deep depression and self-medicating led to the end of her second marriage. Judy also suffered from alcoholism, addiction, and depression for the majority of her adult life. Judy's third husband, Sidney Luft, claimed that Judy tried to take her own life at least 20 times over the course of their 13-year marriage. 
In the months leading up to her death, Judy had a brief relationship with Mickey Deans, who later admitted that over the course of their three-month relationship, he would bring a variety of stimulants to Judy every time he saw her. Judy Garland died on June 22, 1969, just 12 days after her 47th birthday. Her cause of death was listed as, quote, self-administered accidental overdose of barbiturates. The story of Judy Garland is just so incredibly tragic, she was shoved into the spotlight as a toddler and forced to remain there for decades despite her crippling stage fright, and to be practically force-fed pills as young as 10 and be kept on them for years because of a man's idea of what a weight, an actress's weight should be, it's no wonder that Judy fell into dependency on pills that stayed with her for her life. Trying so hard and being told that it still isn't enough is so incredibly damaging, and I'm adding Judy Garland to our time machine list because, my God, that woman deserved all of the love. Yes. Just like Judy's daughter and fellow Max Jacobson client, Liza Minnelli. Liza was born March 12, 1946, and made her film debut at the age of three in the 1949 musical In the Good Old Summertime. At 16, Liza moved to New York with hopes of becoming an actress and dancer. Her parents refused to financially support her, but Liza preferred it that way as she was determined to make it on her own. In 1965, Liza starred as Flora in the musical Flora the Red Menace. Her performance earned Liza a Tony Award at the age of 19 for Best Actress in a Musical. She remained the youngest winner of the award until 1991, when 11-year-old Daisy Egan won for The Secret Garden. Tony winners, side note! While looking through Best Actress wins, I came across a lot of names that made my heart swell with a beautiful nostalgia. So... I just want to give them a shout-out, even though I know they won't hear this. B.B. Newworth. Mm. Bette Midler. Oh. Bernadette Peters. Yes. Natasha Richardson. Oh. Tyne Daly. Mm. And the one and only, Miss Angela Lansbury. Oh, yeah. Did you know that Angela Lansbury has been nominated for seven Tony Awards and has won five of them? She also won six Golden Globes. Special shout out to the Queen, Julie Andrews, who was nominated mm. for three Tonys. Because I will honestly go out of my way to sing her praises as often as humanly possible. The fact that we don't have a movie where Julie Andrews and Angela Lansbury play a couple who solve crimes with their adopted daughter, Sarah Paulson, is a shame and we are all the worse off for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. She likes a story. We all know that. Of course. Uh, so far, Liza has won four Tony Awards, including a special Tony Award in 1974, one Academy Award, two Golden Globes, and two Emmy Awards. In 1990, she was honored with a Grammy Living Legend Award. And when you add all of these things together, it means that Liza Minnelli is one of only 21 performers to have ever received the coveted EGOT which is when someone wins an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony. Other EGOT winners include Mel Brooks, Whoopi Goldberg, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Barbara Streisand, Rita Marano, Audrey Hepburn, and John Legend. Liza is probably best known for her role in the 1972 musical Cabaret, but for me, nothing will top her performance as Lucille II on Arrested Development. 
She is so unbelievably charming and funny on that show. And I learned that she learned specifically how to fall so she could do her own scenes. Uh, and that just made me love her even more. Similar to her mother, not only is Liza incredibly talented, but she also struggled with addictions to alcohol and illegal substances. She also received shots from Max Jacobson for a number of years, and after her mother's death, Liza became addicted to the Valium that was prescribed to help her cope with her grief. When asked about addiction, Liza said, quote, My whole life, the disease has been rampant. I inherited it, and it's been horrendous, but I've always asked for help. In 1984, she was treated for alcohol and prescription drug use, and in 1985, she entered the Betty Ford Center. In 2000, Liza contracted encephalitis from a mosquito bite, which left her with speech difficulties and unable to walk. Oh, wow. She was, right? Yeah. She was told she would remain in a wheelchair for the rest of her life, but Liza was determined and she learned how to walk again. Unfortunately, it led to more substance abuse issues, and in 2015, she entered into a rehab facility. But I'm proud of her for asking for help when she needed it, because I know it isn't easy. Again, she's not going to hear this, but go Liza. Oh, yeah. Uh, another woman connected to Liza and Judy, who was also a client of Max Jacobson, was Kay Thompson. Kay was born November 9th, 1909, and was known for her big personality. She was a close friend and mentor of Judy Garland's and godmother to Liza Minnelli. And just like her famous friends, Kay was also addicted to her shots from Max Jacobson. She would tell people they were vitamin B12 shots, but those who were close to Kay knew the shots consisted mostly of speed. Kay was also said to be ahead of her time, as she made wearing slacks a fashion statement for women, which was seen as shocking for the time period. She also designed women's pants that were later sold at Saks Fifth, at Fifth Avenue. Always one for style, I read that Kay only drank Coca-Cola simply because she felt the red can was chic. <laughs> Ooh, I, yes. I find is, that ridiculously charming. This is charming. my lady. This is my kind of lady. I right? love that. Yes. Uh, she was an actress known for the Ziegfeld Follies, the Harvey Girls, and the 1957 musical Funny Face. Kay was also a legendary vocal coach for such stars as Lena Horne, Marlena Dietrich, Lucille Ball, and Frank Sinatra. But Kay is probably best known as the creator of the Eloise books, a girl about a girl named Eloise who lives with her nanny, her pug, and her turtle on the tippy-top floor of the Plaza Hotel in New York. Oh, yes. Kay always believed that her Eloise series was meant for adults, as the original subtitle was, quote, a, a book for for uh, a book for precocious a book for precocious grown-ups there nice. we go i think nice. i was trying to do it too fast i don't know in 2015 simon and schuster released a collection of four eloise stories narrated by the goddess herself miss bernadette peters mm. Apparently, there was a time when the Plaza Hotel set up a room where visitors could speak to a woman posing as Eloise's nanny. Now, at this point in time, Kay was living at the Plaza and had been for years. She established squatter's rights and lived there for free for seven years. Stop. Then in 1988, Donald Trump purchased the Plaza and asked Kay if they could use Eloise when promoting the hotel. 
She said no, and I don't know if it's related or not, but he then found out she was living rent-free, so he had her kicked out of the building. His exact quote was, get the old lady out. Again, I'm not saying Kay turning him down and him kicking her out are related in any way, but I think it's safe to assume they probably are. I think so, too. Kay moved in with Liza Minnelli, who cared for Kay until her death on July 2nd, 1998, at the age of 88. She was found unconscious, but no cause of death has ever been released. Now, I know this has all been very frantic, but we're going to shift from actors over to politics and the most famous clients that Max Jacobson had, the Kennedy family. Oh. First, we're going to look at John Fitzgerald Kennedy, better known simply as JFK, who was born May 29th, 1917, to the very prominent Kennedy family in Brookline, Massachusetts. JFK went to Harvard before joining the U.S. Naval Reserve in 1941. During World War II, he commanded a series of PT boats, including PT-109, which was rammed by a Japanese destroyer on August 1, 1943. The PT boat was sliced in half, which killed two of the crew, JFK, who was lieutenant at the time, and ten members of the crew survived, clinging to debris. After five hours in the water, the men all swam to a nearby island. JFK then swam back out into the middle of the ocean, hoping to flag down a ship. He returned to the island, and they all swam to the larger Cross Island, where they met two locals who agreed to get a message south. JFK carved a distress message in a coconut shell, which was taken to another lieutenant on another island, who then rescued JFK and his crew. And also, I am impressed that after sustaining back injuries when their boat was destroyed, that JFK was able to swim back and forth to an island. And I'm so sorry, but I would be remiss if I didn't say, I know that the point of that wasn't to turn me on, but that for some (laughs) reason was really hot to me. Wow. My microphone just fell over. That's that's where we're at. (laughs) It was absolutely not, but... um, this is this is what happens when it's I'm on the, the other side of Blanche. It's the tenacity for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh yeah. I just. Oh, the, yeah. I, I'm gonna say this. I just know him as a person, so I'm not into him at all. Look, and here's the thing. Me neither. But that story alone, I'm like, <gasps> yes, sign me up. Yes. Yeah. And I would like to clarify. I don't know him personally. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> I knew what you meant. He died decades before. I was born, so obviously I don't know him, but I love that I'm like, I know him as a person, and no. That's a no from me. (laughs) It's a no from me, dog. What a joke. Shout out Randy Jackson. So, JFK was given the Navy and Marine Corps Medal, which is the highest non-combat decoration awarded for heroism. My point of bringing all of this up was the injuries that JFK sustained that day never truly left him. He had a herniated disc removed in 1944 and underwent a spinal fusion surgery in 1957. So JFK returns from war, tries out journalism for a while, then 
uh, becomes part of the U.S. House of Representatives from 1947 to 1953. He was then elected as the junior senator for Massachusetts from 53 to 1960, during which time he published a book that won a Pulitzer Prize in 1957. We get it. Impressive. Again, still not into him. <laughs> I know. It's, hel- it's helping you. It's not it's, helping me. It's, yeah. Wow. Again, again, I feel like that, and I'm going to regret saying this, but I feel <laughs> every time we mention a man and I don't react to it, I feel like the elderly man on The Simpsons at the old folks' home when something's happening on the screen in front of him and he's punching his crotch <laughs> to, get, <laughs> to get feeling. And <laughs> I just... <laughs> I just want to be like, hello, (laughs) like we're, it's your job, do something. And it's just nothing, but God, it's fine. It's fine. We're going to get you back. Uh, But but again, we like, oh, I'm a decorated war hero. Oh, well, I guess I'll be, I'll join like politics and write a Pulitzer Prize winning book. And it's like, okay, he's impressive. And he hasn't even freaking become president yet. Yeah. So. Uh, JFK then became the Democratic nominee for president in 1960 and chose Lyndon B. Johnson as his vice presidential running mate. During the election, JFK was up against Republican nominee Richard Nixon and his running mate, Henry Cabot Lodge Jr., who I've never heard of until that moment. So I bet they didn't win. (laughs) <laughs> I <laughs> I know how it goes. I, I looked it up. Uh, the campaign started to wreak havoc on JFK. He was exhausted. He still suffered chronic pain from the PT boat attack during the war. Plus, JFK also suffered from migraines, gastrointestinal disorders, the occasional venereal disease. And in 1947, he was diagnosed with Addison's disease, which occurs when the body doesn't produce enough of certain hormones. He admitted to some of his confidants that he was running out of steam. So Chuck Spaulding, an investment banker who was JFK's old Harvard roommate and longtime friend, suggested JFK see Chuck's doctor. Chuck called Max Jacobson and said one of his friends was in a tight situation and needed to see the doctor right away. When Max and JFK meet or met, JFK explained he lacked stamina and he was almost crippled by pain. JFK's war injuries had made it so that he required medical attention just to be able to walk without crutches. Max said not to worry. Stress is one of his specialties, so he mixed up a miracle shot and instantly JFK felt better. It was described as, quote, suddenly JFK, who entered the office tired and weak, had a bounce in his step and could move more easily, despite the pain he lived with every day of his life. He felt stronger, cool, focused, and very alert. JFK met with Max again shortly before the first Kennedy-Nixon debate in September 1960. JFK was once again feeling a lack of stamina, lethargic, and this time had a bit of laryngitis. So Max injected the syringe directly into JFK's throat, and suddenly, JFK was a new man. (laughs) JFK went into that debate charismatic and full of energy. After his performance, more than half of the voting public said they favored Kennedy over Nixon. But going into the debate, the public favored Nixon. Max's miracle shot helped lead JFK to victory. JFK narrowly 
won the popular vote by 112,000 votes and beat Nixon in the electoral vote 303 to 219. After winning the election, Max became a huge part of JFK's team. The presidential secret service gave Max the nickname Dr. Feelgood. And when JFK needed Max, his assistant would call under the code name Mrs. Dunn. Interesting. So if Mrs. Dunn ever called Max's office, he dropped whatever he was doing and rushed right over. After he won the election, JFK started seeing Max three to four times a week. According to the White House visitor logs in 1961 and 1962, Max visited the White House at least 34 times. Wow. JFK was also known to fly to New York just to get his shots from Max, which feels like a really great use of taxpayer money, but neither here nor there. You're president. You do what you want. We've learned that. (laughs) Uh, Max was also invited to every event, gala, and even the infamous Madison Square Garden birthday party that featured a performance by Marilyn Monroe. JFK even insisted that Max travel with him to the Vienna summit in June 1961, where JFK sat down with Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev, Max administered at least three injections to JFK the day of that meeting, as Kennedy misjudged when Khrushchev would arrive, and his first dose started to wear off before the meeting began. JFK requested another shot a few hours into the meeting, as he was slurring his speech and feeling like he couldn't keep up. Max said no, as he believed that he had had too much and any more would cloud JFK's thinking. Kennedy responded, quote, I need the edge. Max reluctantly gave him another dose, and JFK returned to the meeting, reinvigorated. Two months later, East Germans began to build the Berlin Wall, and the following year, the Soviets placed ballistic missiles in Cuba. Did Max's vitamin shot cause JFK to be off his game? Did JFK's performance at the meeting cause the Cuban Missile Crisis that happened in October 1962? Many believe that's true. We don't have time to get into the Cuban Missile Crisis, but that's, those are also words I never thought I'd say on this show. Let's, uh, you know, I'm just saying. Yeah. Did it, did it affect one of, like, the most powerful men in that country? Yeah, I... I I would say it did. Once you get an injection in your throat, I, for giggles, like, I, I don't even know where you go from there. Uh, so U.S. Attorney General Bobby Kennedy grew concerned over the shots that his brother was taking, so he asked Max for some vials so they could be tested. Max gave him five, and Bobby snuck 15 from JFK because JFK was also self-injecting. right. Because Max liked to set up his patients that way. I think I get into it later. I don't know. I'm frantic. (laughs) All of the vials were found to be identical, and each contained nearly 30 milligrams of either amphetamine or methamphetamine. JFK's comment about it was, quote, I don't care if it's horse piss. It's the only (laughs) thing that works. (laughs) Yeah. During one of JFK's trips to New York in 1962, Max gave Kennedy an injection at the Carlisle Hotel. In a fit of what a psychiatrist diagnosed as drug-induced mania, JFK stripped naked and ran through the halls of the hotel. A witness said, quote, he was completely naked on the verge of paranoia and feeling so free of pain that he almost wanted to perform gymnastic acts in the hallway. 
A psychiatrist had to administer dopamine and an antipsychotic to get JFK to calm down. Again, and I cannot stress this enough, this was the mental state of the most powerful man in America. (laughs) And I know we weren't alive at the time, but I find that horrifying, especially when Max knew the side effects included hyperactivity, mood swings, nervousness, impaired judgment. (laughs) So JFK was also on cortisone steroids for his Addison's disease, painkillers for his back, phenobarbital for his IBS, antibiotics for a UTI. He was also drinking excessively, taking LSD, which his doctors hoped would cure his alcoholism. And on top of all of that, he was getting repeated shots from Dr. Max. uh, And he was also given vitamin drops that he could consume orally. The fact that this man could function at all is incredible, But probably due to his Addison's disease, JFK was also receiving shots of testosterone, which, when combined with the other drugs he was taking, made him sexually ravenous. (laughs) So I guess it's no surprise at all that he had so many mistresses. We'll get into that in a moment. I'm just writing down sexually ravenous because it really (laughs) resonates with me right now. Look... Do I want to see a JFK movie where you play him? I sure do. Oh, wow. Yeah. Lady JFK? Come on. Come on. Come on. Uh, JFK was sworn in on January 20th, 1961 as the 35th president of the United States. He remained in the position until his assassination in November 1963. I love that I'm going on this quick side note. Um, One time in the 10th grade, uh, for some reason, I cannot, I can see his face, but I cannot remember his name. Um, one of the, my math teacher, uh, it was at Robert Usher Collegiate, which is no longer, um, a school anymore, but, uh, shout out to, I guess, anybody who went there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, for some reason, it was one of the first few days of school that math teacher was like going student by student, asking everybody, when was your, when's your birthday? And I don't know, like, I don't think he was writing it down. I think he was just, like, bullshitting and trying to, like, eat time. (laughs) But I just remember, like, he's asking everybody. He gets to me. He asks me. And I tell him. I say November 22nd. To which he puts, like, he's looking at a paper, because I assume he's reading our names. He puts the paper down, looks me in the eye, and just goes, that's the day Kennedy was shot. (laughs) And says nothing else. (laughs) To which I respond, well, I didn't do it <laughs> because my God, man. Uh, and then he just moved on to the next person. And I believe the next person was uh, my friend Carla, I believe. Shout out. She gave her birthday to which he said, oh, well, that's Kennedy's anniversary. And the smart ass that I am quickly responded with, oh, yeah, that's why we hang out. Our Kennedy, our Kennedy affiliation. And it's just like, well, that's the day he was shot. It's like, I I didn't know that. Well, I didn't know that course. until that moment. But yes. like, the point is, I had nothing to do with it. It was decades before me. Yes. Again, can't remember that teacher's name, but oof, that, that stuck with me. Stuck with me. It also stuck with me that I was a real jackass to him because I was like, if you're going to be a jackass, I'm going to be a jackass. I think that that was more than fair. It's, maybe that's where this was born. 
I don't know. Mm -hmm. Uh, JFK was the fourth U.S. president to be assassinated. The others include Abraham Lincoln in 1865, Mm. James Garfield in 1881, and William McKinley in 1901. Fun fact, William McKinley is the name of the high school in the TV show Glee. And if you haven't checked out our Glee episode on the Glee curse yet, you should. It's a romp. You're doing God's work over there. Just I was so excited to find a way to naturally put that in. It really feels right. Right? Uh, While JFK's assassination is well known and uh, his assassin was also assassinated, I guess, uh, there is a conspiracy theory that someone in the Kennedy administration orchestrated JFK's murder because his drug habit was making him a liability. Whether that is true or not, we don't know. There is so much about JFK's death that we'd never have time to get into all of it, especially on an episode about someone else. So I'm going to quickly change the subject and hope that no one notices. (laughs) Jackie Kennedy! (laughs) Was born July 28th, 1929. She was a socialite, photographer, writer, book editor, and all-around fashion icon. She received a Bachelor of Arts degree from George Washington University in 1951, and after graduation, started working as a photographer for the Washington Times-Herald. In May 1952, Jackie and JFK were introduced by a mutual friend at a dinner party in Washington. The couple hit it off and married September 12, 1953. After a miscarriage early in their relationship, JFK and Jackie had their daughter Caroline in uh, November 1957 and their son John Jr. in November 1960. Their son Patrick died as an infant in August 1963, Mm. which caused Jackie to go into a deep depression. Over the years, Max gave numerous shots to Jackie for depression and migraines. In 1968, Jackie married Aristotle Onassis, a Greek shipping magnate. The couple remained married until his death in 1975. In the late 1970s, Jackie worked as a book editor in New York, and to this day, she is one of the most popular and most recognizable first ladies in American history. Yes. And honestly, Jackie not only gave up her career to be with JFK, she suffered the loss of not one but two babies— and then was seated next to her husband when he was assassinated. Mm. Not to mention, she put up with her husband's repeated affairs. Jackie is on my time machine list. Get the blankets. I'm relieved to know that Jackie didn't have to live through the death of her son, John Jr., because I feel that may have broken her. But then with that in mind, my God, add Carolyn Kennedy to our list, because she's had an incredible amount of trauma uh, throughout her life, so... You know, I don't know why I say hashtag justice for Caroline, but I do. Blankets for Caroline. Uh-huh. Uh, in November, uh, I love that I, oh, November 1993, I mistyped that. And I was like, why did I put 1003? That's weird. I meant a nine, Christy. It's 1993. <laughs> Frantic. Uh, Jackie was participating in a fox hunt in Virginia when she was thrown from her horse. When she was... Ex- Examined at a nearby hospital, they found a swollen lymph node in her groin. Soon after, Jackie started getting swollen lymph nodes in her neck, which were diagnosed as non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which is a blood cancer. She started chemotherapy in January 1994, but by March, the cancer had spread to her brain and her spinal cord. Mm. Jackie passed away May 18, 1994, at the age of 64. 
JFK Jr. is convinced that Max Jacobson was responsible for Jackie's lymphoma. He read a study in American Multicenter Cohort that nearly 2,500 patients who used amphetamines frequently, meaning more than once a week, were nearly five times more likely to develop lymphoma than those who did not. Whoa. And, I, and again, I remind you of the math that I did for this episode. 33% of Max's former clients died from some form of cancer or lymphoma. That number doesn't account for the patient, any patient who may have been diagnosed with cancer and survived. But I felt that 33% was rather high. Yes. And Max didn't just take care of JFK and Jackie. He also took care of most of the people in their inner circle, including some of Kennedy's mistresses, in-laws, and their friends. Marilyn Monroe was a regular patient of Max's from 1954 to 1956. While she was in New York, she befriended Truman Capote, who introduced her to Max. Capote thought Max's shots could help with Marilyn's lack of energy, the way they helped with Capote's writer's block. While filming Bus Stop and Some Like It Hot, Marilyn got her shots from Max's son, Thomas. The shots included amphetamines, painkillers, vitamins, steroids, and human placenta. Max referred to them as tissue regeneration. At JFK's infamous birthday event at, the Madis- at Madison Square Garden, before her performance, Marilyn had debilitating stage fright. Max had to step in and give Marilyn an injection for her to be able to get on stage. That same night, Max also had to administer an injection to JFK before he could take the stage. Not so fun fact, when Jackie learned that Marilyn would be at the event, the event Jackie opted not to attend. The bullshit that Jackie put up with was real. After years of substance abuse, Marilyn Monroe was found dead in her home on August 4, 1962. The autopsy claims that Marilyn died from an overdose, but we have a lot of feelings about that. For more information on those feelings, check out the episode we did on Marilyn Monroe back in July of 2021. Continuing with JFK mistresses, we have Mary Pinchot Meyer. She was a high school friend of JFK's who went on to marry a high-ranking CIA official. In 1954, the Kennedys moved next door to the Myers, and Mary and Jackie became close friends. And then, for reasons I'll never understand, Mary became JFK's mistress after her divorce in 1958. And if dating your best friend's husband wasn't a bad enough decision, Mary also received shots from Max Jacobson. Then on October 12, 1964, Mary was out for her daily walk around noon on the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal towpath in Georgetown when she was shot twice. She did not survive the attack. 45 minutes later, police apprehended 25-year-old Ray Crump, who was found near the scene. His clothes were soaking wet. Crump claimed he had been fishing, and he fell into the canal. He was arrested, but due to a lack of evidence, he was acquitted. People started to speculate about Mary's death, believing it was an execution style as it was a close-range shot to the head and another to the chest. And it was done in broad daylight. Mary's death also occurred just a few weeks after the Warren Commission concluded that JFK's assassination was the work of a lone gunman. Mary allegedly fought back against the conclusions, believing someone else was involved in the death of JFK. 
Then there's the fact that the day after her murder, a CIA officer was caught in Mary's home looking through her desk. Although many believe he was trying to prevent Mary's affair from going public because Mary was known for keeping a diary of all the secrets that JFK told her while he was under the influence. Again, that was the most powerful man in the country, and he would get hopped up on drugs and tell women everything. Like, remember how he used to tell Marilyn about, like, Area 51 and, like, all of these things? And it's like, come on, man. Stop it. And the fact that this woman died? Come on. Yeah. Her death to this day remains unsolved. I bet it does. I bet it does. Another patient of Max's who was also attached to the Kennedy Kennedys was Mark Shaw. Mark was born June 25th, 1921, and after graduation, he attended New York University and Pratt Institute. In December 1941, Mark enlisted in the United States Army Air Force and served as a pilot through World War II. After the war, Mark managed uh, the, the photography studio at Harper's Bazaar. In 1952, he became a freelance photographer for Life magazine, and in 1953, Life asked Mark to spend two weeks on the set of the movie Sabrina in order to photograph Audrey Hepburn. Mark was also the first photographer to portray the Paris fashion collections backstage in color. Mark soon became known for his photos of celebrities and public figures, and in 1959, he was assigned to photograph Jackie Kennedy. And when JFK won the election, Mark became the official Kennedy family photographer. In 1964, Mark released a book of Kennedy family photos that went on to become a bestseller. Mark was the one who introduced Chuck Spaulding to Max, and it was Chuck Spaulding who brought Max to JFK. And honestly, that's how this story goes. One person gets treated by Max, they come alive after his injections, feel on top of the world, so they recommend him to a friend, who recommends him to a, one of their friends. And suddenly Max is treating 10 plus people in the same group. Unfortunately, it meant that Max was injecting entire groups with the same potentially lethal substances, and sooner or later, it was bound to catch up with him. On January 26, 1969, Mark was found dead at his New York apartment. He was just 47 years old. At the time of his death, Mark was being treated by Max Jacobson, so the medical examiner's office called Max, who insisted, oh, Mark must have died from a heart attack. He has a serious history of heart disease. Mm. Well, the coroner decided to do an autopsy anyway and found no evidence of heart disease at all. Instead, he found that Mark's organs were, quote, laden with methamphetamine residue and that there was heavy scarring and discoloration along Mark's arms from repeated injections. The autopsy lists Mark's cause of death as, quote, acute and chronic intravenous amphetamine poisoning. When Max's staff were questioned by authorities, they admitted to buying large quantities of amphetamines and that and said they gave out many high-level doses. Over the course of five years, they ordered 40 pounds of amphetamines. Wow. Mark was never charged, or Max was never charged with the death of Mark Shaw, but his practice did get thrust unwillingly into the spotlight with negative effects. Put more on that in a moment. Yes. 
Another person from the Kennedy's inner circle who was also a patient of Max's was actor Peter Lawford, who was born in London in September 1923. Peter moved to California in 1941 and signed with MGM. By the age of 25, Peter was one of the highest paid actors in Hollywood. Peter dated various actresses, and to quote a book I was reading, quote, most of whom found him a disappointing lover. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, okay. And look, I'll say it, Peter was a very attractive man, so I'm not surprised that he was lackluster in the sack. I said it. The prettiest ones tend to be the laziest because they've never had to work for it. Am I going to regret saying that? Probably. But Peter deserves it. In 1954, Peter married JFK's sister, Pat Kennedy. In 1960, Peter became an American citizen and helped campaign for Kennedy and the Democratic Party. Peter and his wife divorced in 1966 due to Peter's infidelity. He married again in 1971 before divorcing in 1975. Then in 1977, he married a woman that he had met just three weeks prior. They divorced two months later. Oh, Peter married a final time in July 1984, just months before his death. Peter was also the one who introduced JFK to Marilyn Monroe, so I can't help but wonder if Marilyn would have lived longer if she hadn't been sucked into that world. But again, for more on that, check out our Marilyn Monroe episode from last year. Uh, Peter uh, is mentioned, from what I recall, multiple times. Oh, yeah. Uh... Peter was also the one who cleaned up Marilyn's house after her death, which makes you wonder, was he removing any hint of Marilyn's affair with JFK, or was he removing any hint that her death was actually a murder? Honestly, I don't trust Peter, and neither should you. Nope. Peter's close longtime friend, Elizabeth Taylor, confided in Peter that she was checking into the Betty Ford Center. Peter agreed to join her there, but instead he tipped off the tabloids as to where Elizabeth was, and made about 15 grand for doing so. So I guess that aside from being a huge actor in his day, Peter was also a massive dick. Peter was also receiving shots from Max Jacobson, as well as consuming incredible amounts of drugs and alcohol, which caused him to suffer from kidney and liver failure later in life. Peter died at the age of 61 on December 24, 1984, from cardiac arrest. After Peter's death, his body was cremated, but there was an issue with certain bills not being paid, so the cemetery threatened to evict his ashes. Oh, wow. Yeah, his fourth wife removed the ashes from the cemetery in 1988 and scattered them in the Pacific Ocean off the coast of California. The National Enquirer paid for the boat in exchange for taking photos during the event. So there's that. Uh, Also, yet again, something else I didn't write down. Uh, Peter Lawford and uh, uh, Frank Sinatra were like buddies, tight, tight buddies. And Peter Lawford was like, hey, Frank, you know what? I'll get JFK to come to your house to hang. And Frank was like, oh, fuck, the president. God, yeah, perfect. So Frank puts in all this money to get a fucking helipad built at his house so that the president has his way of coming in. And guess what? Peter didn't deliver, and Frank cut him off and snubbed him for the rest of his life. (laughs) That's amazing. Again, did that have anything to do with this? No. Was it fun? Of course. Yes. (laughs) So that's where we're at. 
Uh, other people close to the Kennedys who also received injections from Max Jacobson include JFK's former Harvard roommate and BFF Chuck Spaulding, who died at the age of 81 in 1999 from myeloma, which is a cancer that forms in a plasma cell. There was also another JFK mistress named Judith Exter, who died from breast cancer at the age of 65 in September 1999. And Stash Radziwill, a Polish prince who was married to Jackie's younger sister, Carolyn. Stash died in 1976 from a heart attack. He was 62 years old. Again, I'm convinced the high amount of cancer deaths and heart problems in his former patients is related to these shots. Again, I'm not a doctor, but I've seen enough ER to know my way around. <laughs> wow. No, no, no. I I have nothing but so much respect for everyone in the medical field because I'll say it. I could never. I just don't. Yeah. I'm too squeamish. Oh, no. yeah. I couldn't do a single thing. Uh, and just so that we all know, uh, Max had a reach that went further than just the Kennedys. Other political patients of Max Jacobson include President Harry S. Truman, President Richard Nixon, Vice President Spiro Agnew, Florida Senator Claude Pepper, and I believe he was New York. Um, I think he was a New York mayor for a long time, and I think he did something presidentially. Uh, Nelson Rockefeller mm. was also one. Uh, and of course, Max, Max Jacobson wasn't the only doctor to put his patient's health at risk. Theodore Morrill uh, was a German doctor in the late 1800s, early 1900s, who told people he was a skin and venereal disease expert. In reality, he made a fortune selling drugs laced with meth. Oh After serving as an army medic in World War I, Morrill's Berlin, Berlin practice grew as he became the personal physician of famous businessmen, athletes, and even royalty. Morrill soon joined the Nazi party, administering shots to the top SS soldiers. In 1936, Morrill met Adolf Hitler at a dinner party, where Hitler became ill. Morrill gave him some pills, and Hitler's health immediately improved. And in 1937, Morrill became Hitler's personal physician, administering shots to both Hitler and Eva Braun with high doses of methamphetamines daily to help them sleep and then more to help them stay awake. Hitler became seriously ill in August 1941. The daily shots that Morrill had been administering were no longer effective. So Morrell started experimenting with the injections, adding things like metabolic stimulants and pig and bull livers. That's yep. yep, great. Morrell promised instant recovery, but as Hitler's body got used to the injections, Morrell needed to increase both the dosage and the strength of the drugs included, and soon he was injecting Hitler with oxycodone and cocaine. Hitler took morale everywhere, including military meetings and even on holidays. Hitler's inner circle didn't trust Morrill, morale, uh, believing that he was nothing but a quack. But they worried about morale, morale's control over Hitler, as they believed these shots distorted Hitler's perception and increased his feelings of grandiosity and paranoia. Some of Hitler's generals were so concerned about this behavior that in July 1944, they attempted to assassinate him. Wow. As the war raged on, 
Hitler was becoming increasingly dependent on a variety of drugs, it was estimated that Morel had Hitler taking approximately 80 different drugs. According to Morel's records, in which he referred to Hitler as Patient A, between August 1941 and April 1945, Hitler received various medication 1,100 times and injections 800 times, which works out to nearly 18 injections and 24 different medications every month. That's wild. It is believed that when Hitler was forced to go cold turkey without his daily medication and shots, he descended into madness before taking his own life. Now, to be clear, regardless as to what drugs he was on, Hitler was still a massive dick, and I am not downplaying his horrific crimes in any way. Morale was never punished in any way for his medical malfeasance or for his involvement with the Nazi party. He died May 1948 at the age of 61. Mm. And while there are sadly numerous other doctors I could mention, I can't have an episode about a shady doctor without mentioning, without mentioning Conrad Murray, a cardiologist from Grenada. In May 2009, Murray became the personal physician of the King of Pop, Michael Jackson. Oh. Mere weeks later, on June 25th, 2009, Michael Jackson died from a lethal dose of propofol at the age of 50. Propofol causes a decreased level of consciousness and a lack of memory. It is usually only given in a hospital setting and is used to induce general anesthesia and for procedures such as endoscopies where you're basically sedated and doctors stick a long tube down your throat that has a camera on the end. And I can tell you, it's not pleasant. Uh, in Canada, propofol is used in MAID, or medical assistance in dying. In June 2016, the Parliament of Canada passed a bill that made it legal for a physician to end the suffering of termini terminally ill adults. It is not available for minors, nor can it be used in the case of mental illness, long-term disability, or any curable condition. Since the autopsy found that Michael Jackson died from an acute propofol intoxication with a contributory benzodiazepine effect, his manner of death was ruled homicide. All doctors who were believed to have treated Michael had their offices searched, and police focused, his, focused their investigation on Conrad Murray. Murray admitted that on the night of Michael's death, he administered 25 milligrams of propofol for insomnia after Michael insisted. Murray claimed he was concerned about Michael's dependency on the drug, and he was trying to wean him off of it. Propofol is usually administered for those by those with extensive training in anesthesiology, which Murray did not have. Of course. In February 2011, 58-year-old Murray was charged with involuntary manslaughter and he was convicted November 7, 2011. He was sentenced to four years in prison, which is the maximum sentence for that particular crime. His medical license was revoked in Texas and suspended in California and Nevada. Murray was released on parole after serving just two years in October 2013. Uh, we will never know whether Conrad Murray's injections on Michael Jackson were an accident or intentional, which is exactly what happened to Max Jacobson's second wife, Nina Hagen. Interesting. In 1964, Doris Shapiro, one of Max's patients, said, quote, 
One night, Max and his wife Nina came to the Waldorf offices. We were sitting around the large upholstered room when Max fussed with his bag, when suddenly Nina said, I don't feel well. Max heard her and began to prepare a syringe. No, Max, she said, no more. He said he'd make her feel better. He took her to another room, and when she came back, she said she felt better. Less than a week later, 45-year-old Nina was dead. The hospital listed her cause of death as a virus, but no autopsy was ever done because the family, a.k.a. Max, didn't request one. Max went to work as usual the next day. When Doris asked Beatrice, one of Max's nurses, what happened, Beatrice allegedly said, quote, I'm afraid Max did it. There is a rumor that Max intentionally caused Nina to overdose because he found out that Nina was allegedly having an affair with Chuck Spaulding, JFK's BFF. Right. Their alleged affair destroyed Chuck's marriage. Interesting. The idea that Max, who was administering doses of his famous vitamin shots to his wife regularly, simply gave her a stronger dose, knowing full well it would kill her, simply because he caught her cheating, is a wild concept to me. And the fact that he made sure that no autopsy was done so it couldn't be proven that her death was actually a homicide is terrifying to me. But whether he was involved in Nina's death or not, Max was never punished for it. But that doesn't mean he was not punished for anything. Harvey Mann was a part-time actor who worked briefly as Max's office assistant. In 1972, Harvey went to the New York Times and gave first-hand accounts on the condition of Max's lab and how Harvey helped manufacture drugs that were shipped worldwide. Harvey even admitted he had been one of Max's patients since the age of 14 and that he'd been working for Max since the age of 20. Harvey claimed he personally administered shots to patients until he ki nearly killed someone with an air bubble. On December 4th, an expose was published titled Amphetamines Used by a Physician to Lift Moods of Famous Patients. Prior to that, it's not like Max was flying under the radar. The Federal Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs admitted to investigating Max multiple times between 1965 and 1970. In 1965, they raided his lab, seized all of his controlled substances, but there were no federal laws to prosecute him at the time. Prior to 1970, the laws were ambiguous and attempts at self-policing by each state's medical board. Nixon wanted to remedy that, so he passed the Controlled Substances Act, which was enacted into law in 1970 to regulate the manufacture, importation, possession, use, and distribution of certain substances. The Bureau of Narcotic and Dangerous Drugs found substantial amounts of amphetamines unaccounted for in Max's office. Over the course of seven years, the office went through 463,719 needles and 236,646 syringes, which averages to about 1,920 needles every week. Wow! Yeah. His lab was unsanitary and in disarray with syringes and paper all over the floor. Garbage cans were overflowing. Max would say he liked the chaos as he believed that there was organization to the disorganization. 
During one of their investigations into Max's practice, a report dated October 26, 1970, noted, quote, placenta observed in respondent's fridge, dated August 1970. And if that isn't gross enough, the placenta was found next to the bread and sandwiches and just all of Max's other food. <laughs> wow. In short, they found Max was manufacturing drugs without FDA approval in a lab that never passed inspections. But at the time, nothing was done. That is, until the New York Times article, which led to a disciplinary hearing in May 1973. The New York State Board charged Max with 48 counts of unprofessional conduct and fraud in the practice of medicine. Hearings began in 1974, where Max was accused of giving himself depressant and stimulant drugs for non-medical purposes, failing to oversee use of drugs by patients. In 1968, Max tried to publish a scientific paper on tissue regeneration, but he didn't follow the proper protocols or steps required for a paper like that to be considered scientific. When the New York State Board investigated him, they found Max had no staff privileges at any hospitals in New York, and that the MS Society found him to be a fraud. The investigation found Max failed to keep proper records of the stimulants and depressants he prescribed, and that in a two-year period, Max was unable to account for 1,474 grams of meth. Max claimed he bought 80 grams of meth per month, which would be enough to make a hundred strong doses every day. It was also found that Max often supplied his patients with medicine that they could self-administer, and that he mailed between two and thirty vials of medicine to patients all around the world every day. It was discovered at least 90% of Max's patients were self-injecting. A nurse even described having to use a grapefruit to teach patients how to administer the drugs themselves. Max Jacobson was found guilty on all 48 counts, as well as an additional count of fraud. On April 25, 1975, the New York State Board ruled to revoke his medical license for unprofessional conduct. He tried to appeal, but was officially denied reinstatement in May 1979. One month later, the Pasteur uh, Institute in Paris stripped Max of his privileges, which he had earned in the early 1930s. Oh, wow. Max had to close his office and worked in the back room of another doctor's office for a few years before simply working out of his own apartment. The loss of his medical license left Max a broken man, which was made only made worse by his intense drug use. Max was known for being his own guinea pig, so if he created a new type of shot, he made sure to always tested on himself first. So after decades of amphetamine and methamphetamine abuse, Max's behavior became increasingly erratic. He started working 24-hour days and seeing up to 30 patients a day. Author Richard A. Lertzman described Max as, quote, controlled by the drug that he was using to control others. And Max never denied his own drug use because it wasn't illegal at the time. The negative attributes and psychologically addictive properties weren't common knowledge outside of the medical community. But as someone in the medical community, there is no way that Max wasn't personally aware of the negatives. Max Jacobson died December 1st, 1979, at the age of 79. 
from what is being described as natural causes. Over the years, Max would be called Dr. Needles, Miracle Max, and Dr. Feelgood. And while most of his patients believed that Max was a miracle worker, many believed that Max was nothing more than a snake oil salesman hiding behind the facade of research. Max was seen as responsible, either directly or indirectly, for destroying Mickey Mantle's career, for getting JFK and Marilyn hooked on methamphetamines, for the decline of Robert Cummings, for Jackie Kennedy's lymphoma, and for the deaths of Mark Shaw and Nina Hagen. It is also believed that Max Jacobson is responsible for the rampant methamphetamine addiction in Hollywood at the time, and a study by Dr. Lu- Louis, or Dr. Leslie Iverson directly links Max Jacobson to the widespread use of meth in the United States. A former office assistant named Doris Shapiro said, quote, Max was not a simple charlatan. He was a far more complicated one, brilliant, mysterious in his power to manipulate and orchestrate all the body systems and the mental ones as well. He had about him a symptom of greatness. He, ha- he was corrupt to the core. A former, news, a former nurse named Ruth said, quote, Max was totally off the wall, absolutely a quack, out of his mind. But according to Max's daughter, Jill, Max just wanted to help people. Max said his goal was, quote, to treat the patient, not the disease. No matter what name Max gave his injections, whether it was tissue regeneration or vitamin shots, at the very heart of it, he was still injecting highly addictive drugs into unsuspecting people. And as a doctor, he fully knew the side effects of such powerful drugs at the time that he was administering them. But it didn't seem to matter how dangerous he was. Max was always seen as a hero. He even received the Scroll of Honor from the Panama Ambassador in July 1966. And while some may be quick to think that Max did it all for money, many of his patients never paid him at all, including John F. Kennedy. Oh, wow. (laughs) Right? But I'm quick to believe Max was more interested in the fame and prestige than he was in the money. Max's scandal led to America's war on drugs and a major change in medical licensing laws. But even with those positive aspects, it's still difficult to see anything but negative, especially when you see the amount of lives that he helped to destroy. Reporting for True Crime and Cocktails, I'm Christy Oxborough. Wow, what a fabulous episode of this show. I'm a fan of our show and I'm a fan of this episode. Um, Listen, let's take one more break, get another drink, hit the loo again if you need to, and then we're going to come on back with our thoughts on this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. Welcome back to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We're, of course, discussing Dr. Feelgood. Man, oh, man. I I mean, you really outdid yourself with this one. I think this one was, I mean, there's so much information. It was really something. Um, I'm just going to go through my notes very quickly. <laughs> Ew, Carl was just one of my favorite ones yet. Um, it's interesting because I see some parallels between him and between what I learned about Purdue Pharmaceuticals, which, of course, were the, mm. the pharmaceutical company that started the – essentially started the opioid crisis in America. Right. And that they were all about, like, the worst thing that someone can be in is pain. Why don't we want to help people? And on the surface, that sounds like a very noble pursuit. But, I mean, you know as well as I do that 
this is another great example where it's like, right, but at what cost, right? You know, like, right. what are the long-term effects, all of the above? <laughs> hey, lady. <laughs> um, I just love it. Uh, in there, there's a little sheep sperm and there's some monkey gonads. I was so excited to write that down. Uh, <laughs> and I just wrote down, sing the song. Sing the song. I like that um, a lot. That's where I'm at. Um, b -b 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 where was I? Oh, you were bringing up the whole kind of, it's so funny that you brought up how confusing the Eddie, Ta Eddie Fisher rather, uh, whole uh, chronology with, with all the different people was, um, because I, I had the privilege of seeing Carrie Fisher do her one woman show years ago and right. she does like a whole like PowerPoint moment or she did during that show where she's like, buckle in because this is going to get confusing. And she like walks you through the whole kind of like family tree. Right. It was very funny. She was a gift. Uh, what a loss. What a loss. What a loss. Um, show, Elizabeth Taylor, who wanted to be late to her own funeral. That's something I would do. Uh, the also, <laughs> well, you were talking about um, Max hitting Mickey Mantle's hip bone, and in those injections, he was putting in placenta and bone. I don't, this just feels like, I don't know what science this was based in, but it feels like we're doing a little bit of a, I mean, that is just playing God to me. Like, the, yeah. it's really, it just feels like he was all over the place. Like monkey gonads, bone, human placenta. Also, where was he getting these human placentas? I don't want to know. I don't want to know. Um, the quote, I'm 35, but I feel 40. Dude, I was feeling 40 when I was 12, so uh, don't <laughs> talk to me. Um, now, here's something I think is an amazing synchronicity. I have chosen to wear a Get the Blankets shirt hey. for today's episode, and there was so many new additions to the Blanket Gals list. Judy Garland being one, oh. which get the blankets for her. My oh, I know. God, that's horrifying. Also, yes, shout out Liza Minnelli, Lucille too, one of the greatest characters ever. Absolutely. I just, a uh, buster, I've got the dizzies. Um, such a great <laughs> character, so funny. I had no idea about the encephalitis, the fact that she couldn't walk or talk again, and then did appear in a movie that I deny the existence of in general, which is Sex in the City 2, uh, but I'm going to bring it up here because I think it's important. She danced to Beyonce's single ladies in that movie, and what a triumph. What a triumph for her. Good for her. What a triumph. Good for her. Um, the story about Kay Thompson is wild. Uh, the fact that Trump kicked her out and then she lived with, with Liza until her death. I just wrote, well, buckle in because one of your children is probably going to have to do that with me. Uh, <laughs> then you brought up how, uh, you know, you feel like you have to punch yourself in the crotch. And I just wrote, if I have to punch her in the crotch to get the feeling back, I will. Uh, and that's why I say that only from love. Of course, of course. Um, I had no idea about JFK's drug use. I really did, had no idea about any of this. Uh -huh. That is fascinating to me. And it's fascinating to me. And I want to preface this by saying... I am not comparing JFK to Hitler. The only comparison I am going to draw is that they were both politicians who yes, became sure. presidents, essentially. Right. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting to me that JFK, who was known for his charisma, and Adolf Hitler, who in a very different way was known for his charisma, it's very interesting to me that they had these kind of similar stories. 
And it does make me wonder about about what the I mean, it's just it's it's fascinating to think about the fact that the one doctor you brought up, I'm skipping ahead now, but the uh, Dr. Morell who was the Nazi doctor who was working with Adolf Hitler, yeah. it's like you could argue that if he had not supplied him with that medication when he did, would Hitler have been as charismatic as he was? Could he have risen to power in the same way? Mm. It's impossible to know or speculate, but it's just fascinating to me that there's that that, that um, connection between the two of them and that they had kind of these similar, you know, drug oh, things. Yeah. Uh, sexually ravenous is something I might just put on a shirt for myself <laughs> just to have. Um, sure, sure. Now, we get into the JFKs the, and the Kennedys. I just had to bring up that I don't know if you know this, but I once auditioned for a miniseries about the Kennedys called The Kennedys. Uh, hey. And now I know what you're wondering. Who who could she have been auditioning for? Oh, tell well, me it was JFK. <laughs> no, no, because you did bring that up. And I was like, no, but, you know, it was, um, it was the sister, uh, the one who... Uh, had the lobotomy done that unfortunately did leave her uh, speechless for the rest of her life. She had seizures and whatnot. I believe, oh. was it Rosemary? I believe it was Rosemary. Um, oh, boy. Yes, it was Rosemary. I wrote it down. There it is. Uh, and I remember for the audition, it was like the first scene was her pre-lobotomy, so having, you know, a normal conversation. But then the second scene was a whole scene of dialogue and you just had to sit there essentially like you're in a a waking coma and I'll never right. forget like having to sit still and just like staring off for like a good three minute long scene that was being read while I was anyway didn't book the part didn't book the part maybe it's um, for the best but I do want to go on to say Katie Holmes starred as Jackie O in that miniseries who connects to Joshua Jackson <laughs> shout out Joshua Jackson Dr. Death was a triumph of a performance um <laughs> Also, Barry Pepper was in that miniseries, and to that I say, hey. he can get it. Um, wow. Also on that list, JFK Jr., the fact that you brought up the stunning specimen that is JFK Jr. and nothing came out of you, this is a remarkable situation that we are in. Um, you brought up Mary Pinchot Meyer. That made me think of Bronson Pinchot, which made me think of Perfect Strangers, which is a show that now I feel would be prob problematic if you were making it, but at the time was such a root of comedy uh, in my childhood. Um, another thing that came up for me, the fact that this man, Max, Dr. Max, word of mouth, it's the same I as know. we were talking last week about Ed and Lorraine Warren. It was like this was pre-internet. And it's fascinating to me that they became so famous solely by word of mouth. I mean, I guess it, it, to that note, benchmarking works. Um, <laughs> we don't know that they didn't have bus stops with their faces on it. We don't. We don't. Uh, you then mentioned uh, Stash Radzidwell, uh, and you referred to him as a Polish prince. And that made me think of Abe Froman, the Sausage King of Chicago. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Shout out Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, I mean, God, I am so chaotic today. It feels right. Again, this is the new me, apparently, last week and this week. Well, uh, it's, it's interesting to me, again, I think more than anything, that he clearly knew the risks. It seems like he wasn't a non-intelligent person. It just feels like he was... When you get so much attention, it's interesting that he didn't 
get paid a lot of the time, that JFK never paid him, that there was people that didn't pay right? him because it feels then like it's more about ego for him. It's more about having these very famous people relying on him, dependent on him. Like this is a, it's, it speaks to the kind right. of person who would put monkey gonads in something and sheep sperm and hope for the best. Last comment I wanted to make, you just mentioned the location Panama, which I'd like to give a shout out to any of the 90 Day Fiancé before the 90 Days viewers slash fans. And what a wild ride this season has been. It's the best season of reality television I've seen in years. And I just want to shout out the Jasmine Gino storyline as Jasmine is from Panama. If you know, you know. Um, That's it. I loved everything about that. I loved Listen. where you were going. I loved that uh, one of my cats at the last break snuck into the office and I didn't notice until it was too late. And I thought, it's fine. She'll sleep in a corner. But she immediately started like scratching at the door. And I was like, I can't do that. So I had to like quietly away from the mic, call her over and she's just been sitting. So I've been like trying to hold her, but not too close to the microphone because she's very happy, which is beautiful. And she doesn't normally do this. She never wants to be in here. She doesn't want this much attention. So I won't see her for a week. And you know who we, you know who we haven't seen in this record, who we always see in our records is Sharky. Have they Freaky Friday'd? Should I show her butt? <laughs> he does like to parade in front of the he camera does. if you're he a does, listener that's, that's never watched the zooms on uh on youtube that is some oh my god sharks her ear twitched it's unsettling <laughs> listen I know is this yeah. is that you are bringing forth such great work while we are going through what could be described as some sort of phenomenon mm-hmm. some sort of mm-hmm. significant shift in our uh, psyches and I commend you for it I really do you are too kind it's been it's been a it's been a real couple of weeks <laughs> yeah mentally me. and I mean I'll, I'm gonna I'm gonna call him out for it uh before we recorded this I left the room. I had prepped the room as best I could. And then I was like, oh, I got to go grab a drink. I'll be right back. So I go grab a drink. And as I'm walking down the hall, my 17-year-old son looked at me and went, oof, you look beat up. I mean, kudos my husband very quickly, like, not like milliseconds later, just went, you never say that to a woman. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I get that. But like... He is who he is. Oh, and now she's fighting to get away from me. My point is, it's it's been a lot. Uh, shout out to Lauren for uh, moving her schedule around because this, again, we don't normally record at this time of day. Yeah. I, uh, I was under the weather yesterday and was not in a great place <laughs> for recording. So we have pushed it and she moved around her schedule and I am thankful for her. Always. Listen. Um, And uh, so, yeah, we're both just in a weird place, and I can't believe I had anything to say. And again, if if anybody wants to get on that Angela Lansbury, Julie Andrews picture, I'm I'm interested. I would like to be part of it. I'm also very uh, happy that you use the term picture. (laughs) 
don't know what's happening, but I I need you, dear listeners, to know, play safe when you're dealing with Ouija boards and play safe when you're dealing with Zooms late at night and speaking of the paranormal because you don't know what's going to happen. Don't take risks. Yeah. (laughs) Don't... Take your Zooms seriously. Take your Zooms, your crystals, your channeling of whatever seriously. It's very, very true. Let this be a cautionary tale. You know what? I'm excited, though, because this feels like, you know, there's times when you're watching a television show and there is a season arc is what we call them. So that's a storyline that continues through the whole season. And what I feel like is we have embarked last week on the beginning of a season arc uh, in terms of our uh, Blanche formations. And yeah. I, I'm excited to see where it goes, how long it goes, what's it, what it means. I just cannot believe I said things like Barry Pepper can get it. That is just not <laughs> who I am as a human, uh, certainly not publicly. But again, you're all here witnessing it happening in real time. And I just hope more than anything that, that we reawake, we reawaken the Blanche in you, the original, the OG Blanche. Yeah. Look, I hadn't even considered it, but the fact yeah, I, I mean, you mentioning, I, I mentioned John John. I've mentioned him on this show before. I know. And I mentioned him in just like a, oh, what a loss. Yes. And I was like, meanwhile, I'm over here being like, remember those pictures taken of him in a sweater? I mean, may he rest, by the way. May he rest. Oh, my God. What a tragic, tragic storyline for that entire and- family. I know. Like... There's also a, there's a Robert Kennedy documentary on Netflix. It's in many parts. I watched that a couple years ago now. I was going to say pandemic. It was pre that, but um, fascinating because I didn't know a lot about his story either. And it it is, it is the Kennedys, a fascinating family. My God. And yes, so much tragedy, so much tragedy. Just so sad. Um, Christy Oxborough, like I've just been saying, you knocked this out of the park. This made me feel good. I didn't. Hey. Oh, I like. Dad joke. Um, But we so appreciate your research. This was fascinating. I was riveted the whole time. I did not know any of this, and I'm sure that a lot of our listeners feel the same way. So kudos. I I couldn't have done it without you. Same. Same. (laughs) That's me trying to reach through the screen. There we go. Oh, my Um, God. Is that all it takes? Let's see. No. It's not there yet. Well... Again, baby steps. Baby steps. Maybe I should just start making some flashcards with semi-nude men. (laughs) Tasteful. Tasteful. And we'll, you know. Yeah. I'll clockwork orange you. We'll we'll pry your eyes open and I'll just keep showing you imagery until you feel again. Yeah. It's just going to be me strapped to a chair watching Magic Mike. Over and over and over. Yeah. We'll get there. We'll get you. We'll get there. And thank you, dear listeners, for listening to this episode of True Crime and Cocktails. We so appreciate your support. If you haven't already, give us a follow on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, at True Crime and Cocktails, on Twitter, at Not Detectives. We're also over on Patreon, patreon.com slash Cocktails, where we offer lots of extra bonus episodes, stuff that gets cut for time from these episodes, goes over there into those bonus episodes. We have live monthly Q&As. It's it's a romp in and of itself. Um, and then, of course, the only place to get official True Crime and Cocktails merch is truecrewmerch.com. So check that out as 
well. Uh, Christy, do you want to tell the people about next week's episode? On the next True Crime and Cocktails, Whitney Houston. That's right. That was our February patrons poll pick. We do offer a uh, poll once a month over there where you can vote to decide one of the episodes that we will cover on this main podcast feed. She was our winner. And that is, I have a feeling, a get the blankets situation because, oh, oh yeah. my goodness, uh, a lot of tragedy, a lot of talent. And I know a little bit about her story. And, uh, yep, I'm preparing. I'm preparing myself now. Um, Christy, do you want to say goodnight to the people? Good night, Barry Pepper. Oh, yeah. Good night, Barry Pepper. <laughs> <laughs>